tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Good morning, welcome along to Tip Today, 1800-938-007. That's our free phone number, won't cost you to make a call. And Ali is looking after the programme today. Coming up on the show, the Nina Company, that is a big success story. The government's approach to tackling problems in the health service, we'll be chatting about that. Should we trust the Citizens' Assembly? We'll hear from one of our listeners on that. We'll also hear about misinformation and disinformation online. The healer, Michael O'Dor, will be live with me in studio and uh, Louise Morrissey Temporary's own Louise Morrissey in studio to look back at her 35 years in country music we'll hear about uh, Temporary's Forgotten Soldier and towards the end of the programme we'll talk all about gardening to Ulton Nesbitt so if you have a gardening query as always we urge you to log it with us as soon as you possibly can please on 083 311 you can email tip today at tipfm.com and we're always glad to hear from you whatever way you might make contact with us. Let's have a look at what's making headlines today and the lead story on the Irish Daily Mail is replicated right throughout the papers today. Seemingly there was a blistering row at yesterday's cabinet meeting over a proposal by the Integration Minister, Roderick O'Gorman, to make Ukrainian refugees uh, source and pay for their own accommodation after being here for just uh, 90 days with sources saying that they had been blindsided by that to the Irish Examiner and again they're covering that story with the head- headline Cabinet Clash over Ukraine Housing. Also on the Examiner today we're reading that the UN, the US and Canada last night jointly appealed for a humanitarian pause in the Israeli Hamas uh, conflict to allow safe delivery of aid to civilians hit by shortages of food, water, medicine and electricity as well. Also on the examiner today, the family of Tina Satchwell. Uh, they're set to finally lay her to rest this afternoon, more than six years after she went missing and almost a fortnight after her body was found under the stairwell of her home in Yall in County Cork to the Irish uh, Times. And it's dominated by the most wonderful photograph and that's probably my favourite photograph of the year Uh, so far. It's two uh, little boys and one of them uh, who is consoling the other after the match between St. Joseph's uh, National School, Clondalkin and Goelskolmida at the uh, annual uh, Alliance Common Munskull finals at Croke Park in uh, Dublin. But uh, as I say, one, one little boy is consoling the other who looks distraught after the match, but they just captured a wonderful moment uh, there for sure. Um, the, the Cabinet Row, uh, also referenced on the front of the Irish Times today, Cabinet Row over refugee housing curbs. And also interesting to read today that an Israeli software company that employs 500 staff in Dublin encouraged its employees to create content supporting Israel's narrative in the country's conflict with Hamas. Uh, militants in Gaza leaked internal messages shown. So that's a peek at what's making headlines uh, today. If you want to comment on any of those headlines, again, 083 My first guest this morning, Tipperary Labour uh, TD, Alan Kelly. Good morning to you, Alan. Morning, Fran. 
Uh, good to talk to you today and we'll be talking to you about that good news for Nina in just a moment but I must start with the issue of health if that's okay with you because again this week it's the topic that we've received the most calls and texts uh, about following the news that we had record levels of overcrowding at UHL this week with uh, 130 on trolleys on Monday. Now as a member of a pack. Uh, we heard, of course, as well that the anticipated uh, €2 billion Euro bailout is needed to cover current spending at the HSE. Again, you were very cross about this, and I was interested in what you said um, that if the current, if the overrun is taken out of current spending, you're saying that projects could just disappear. Yeah, I've raised this numerous occasions. What's going on in UHL, by the way, is uh, for me, obviously the worst I've ever seen. Um, I don't think I've spoken about any other topic in the Leinster House in my time there as much as that situation. And sometimes we need to look back at how these decisions were made and who made those decisions. Particularly those, and you know, not just at political level, but at a clinical level. At clinical level, as we head into a recession, who made those decisions? Because the consequences have been absolutely disastrous for people around this area. Um, in relation to uh, the budget, um, I have been in politics for about 20 years. I've never seen a situation where um, the chief executive of the HSE has effectively said that the budget given to him by his department is basically false. Um, it's not going to work. Mm. He, he said he won't be following the government's plans, in fact. That's what he yeah, said. Yeah, I've never seen that before in my life. Um, and I know why he's doing it, I'd say, because he has to protect himself. Um, so he's getting out in front of it. And Bernard Gloucester is well known to many people in the Midwest because he was here for many years, yeah. as you know, Fran. Yeah. But, I mean, he has to, he probably, is, you know, he has to get out in front and say this uh, because we have a population that has increasing demands. Our, pop, our elderly population, as I know only too well myself, has increasing demands. Uh, we've over a million people over 60, and we have uh, also uh, more demands on our health service across a whole range of areas, and particularly post COVID. We also have inflation, uh, which is uh, adding to it. So he has to get out in front of it. And I understand why he would say it. What I don't understand is how the disconnect happens between the government um, and him. I mean, obviously, um, there is something serious, a serious issue here as regards overall agreement at government. And I'd be worried about services into the future. I also have to add, I was astonished at the head at the pack about the children's hospital because you know, this started off at 450-odd million. Uh, Fran, I can tell your listeners now, I don't think this is going to stop shy of 2.3 or 4 billion. Um, I said on January 2019 that this would go over 2 billion and the T-shirt dismissed me. It's now accepted. I asked everyone in the room if they felt I was wrong in saying it would go over 2 billion and everyone mm-hmm. stayed quiet. So what that impact is, and this is just a fact, projects around Tipperary projects around the Midwest, projects around the whole rest of Ireland, will be, quote, profiled. You'll never get a government minister or a government TD or a government supporter to come on your show and say something is stopped, uh, because that's not what happens. What happens is that projects are meant to be done by 2025 or 2026, will now end up in 2028 or 2029, and of course people suffer. I mean, the, the cost of the hospital and the way in which it has been done like it must be a case study into the future. And this idea that they're going to hand it over in October of 2024 and it should be open by April 2025, I can tell you straight out here now that's not going to happen. I'd be surprised if this hospital is, is in place 
operating fully by 2026 even. It's incredible. And in terms of taking responsibility for this, I mean, who is taking responsibility for this at this point? Nobody. Um, ultimately, here, when it comes to issues like this, you've got a, uh, a pull between the Department of Public Expenditure and the Department of Health. Uh, HSE, are, I suppose, are caught in the middle as, as delivery. Um, but ultimately, it's those two departments who have to take responsibility. And I don't know where the Department of Public Expenditure has been been missing in relation to all of this uh, over the last number of years uh, and you know the impact it's going to have on current spending on capital spending on current services on on projects for the future then at capital level uh, is going to be huge and like there are a number of proposals which have been put in by many different people not just my party but others as well in relation to how we change things around i mean not alone have we issues as regards funding we, we have massive, massive issues coming down the road as regards staffing, Frank. It's all very well saying we're going to do this, that and the other. Staffing in the health service is a, a chronic issue now. It's a really serious problem. And let me point out one thing, which um, sometimes doesn't get the priority of this. I have never in my political career had as many issues getting home help for people who need it. Never. And you know what? For once, it isn't all about money. Money is often there. There's just not enough people. And the reason there isn't enough people is because they're not paid enough. And they don't get enough hours to justify it. Now, for many years, I've been advocating for a thing called a registered employment agreement, which would give a set rate per hour to people who work in this sector. It operates in many other sectors, like across other areas, like the security industry and all of these other areas. And if and then you give people minimum amount of hours. And so it would be worthwhile uh, for somebody who wants to work part-time, uh, people maybe who are retired, people who will maybe have children, to do, say, 20 hours, 25 hours a week uh, looking after people in their community uh, with a bit of training, whether it's done through the HSE or privately. Um, but unless we have a registered employment agreement, uh, you won't get that. I know of people who work for various different organisations, I won't name any, and, you know, they're getting, the company is getting X amount of money for their services, but should the poor person work is only getting half of that. And that's not sustainable in my eyes, and people will not take up that work. We're also looking, of course, at a recruitment freeze um, in the midst of what's going to be a very grave winter ahead. Yeah, yeah and yes, yesterday he said over 2,000 would be uh, employed. I mean, a recruitment freeze for me is, um, you know, is, is, is a sharp end of the wedge to use and, uh, when you're in the middle of the crisis we're in. As I've spoken about, look, my I believe from a funding point of view, to save money, the longer you can keep people in their homes, the better. Uh, because the cost of home health and this and that and the other is a fraction of what it costs but some, when somebody has to be maintained in a nursing home and we don't have enough nursing home places. So you're going from something that costs a few hundred euros a week to 14 to 16, 1700 euros a week when somebody ends up in a nursing home. And then after that, then if they end up in an acute bed inside in the hospital, you know, it can be 1,400, 1,500 a day. So it's like a ladder going upwards, a stairs of cost. And the cost ultimately come back to the people listening on your show here tonight, today, uh, the taxpayer. So we need to really rechange and rethink uh, how we manage that whole area, especially with a growing population. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's paramount to be do so, and I'll be raising this again in the next few weeks. Well, again, over the last couple of days, just for your own information, I mean, people are incensed about this and they're really, really angry because there doesn't appear to be a plan. You know, we we, we don't yeah, see it. There's a... almost a fatalistic attitude. I mean, 
Look, I live very close to Limerick. Um, I am a huge supporter of Nina Hospital. Laws have been changed completely over the last number of years with the uh, ad- additions which have been put onto it. It's a great place to go. It's always packed. It also have the new nursing homes, the new St. Connors, which is supposed to be opening in a few months' time, but I doubt that that will happen at that level. Uh, the primary care centre across the road is going to happen. So it's going to have a complete campus there, massive campus. Um, but also, I mean, in UHL, the, the two bed blocks that are needed were needed, you know, to go to the decade of old friend, um, and they have to be put in place. I know loads of people who come to me every week saying, look, we don't want to end up in UHL. We don't want to end up inside there. And, like, for me, that just absolutely accentuates um, the failure um, of the situation. And we in the Midwest, I've said it many times, we were the guinea pigs. Uh, it didn't happen in other areas. We were the guinea pigs, and we have suffered as a result of this. Well, the, the minister on this programme admitted that the reconfiguration didn't work, absolutely didn't work. But again, we didn't see any move to... Well, the other thing is, I mean, it's, you know, and he's right, it didn't work. Um, he wasn't there at the time, but like political decisions were made. But also acute, I mean, people who are dealing with clinic, clinically on behalf of, of at Midwest and the HSE, like, where are they now? They're the people who came to meetings, who spoke in shows like this and said, well, this is the right way to go. Where are those clinicians now? Where are they? People who advocated for this and said it would all work and it was the right thing to do. Mm. Where but, are they? But, but not, they stand over their decisions? But, but not only that, I mean, they're, they're trying to replicate the disaster that's in Limerick in, in, in other places, even, even though they see that it hasn't worked. I, I just... uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's all slowing down, Fran. I'd be honest with you, I think a lot of that has slowing down in other areas because until the Midwest has started out, and the Midwest has been used as an example by uh, people to say that, you know, we can't have what's happened in the Midwest and other parts of the country, and you need to sort yourselves out. I believe in community first. I believe that most people should be dealt with in the community if possible. <clears throat> and that is, you know, obviously, then if you need to be put into an acute setting, you go into an acute setting. Um, but the fact is, at a community level, we simply don't have the staff, don't have the resources. Some places we don't have the capital physical buildings. Um, I've spoken at length now about the fact that uh, we have a growing elderly population, how we're going to manage that. There seems to be no plan in relation to that, particularly when you see um, restrictions now on home health and the fact that people aren't. Like, Fern, I'm constantly fighting for people for home health who get 20 or 25 hours, and they, but they actually only get about 8 or 10. And like, what happens is people aren't looked after to the level they should be, then they end up inside in, in hospital. And, like, the, the gas thing is, take it away from just the health setting and, this, uh, and the, the suffering that these people who paid their taxes all their life have to go through, uh, unfortunately. But even take it from a tax point of view, take it from a taxpayer's point of view, we actually pay. It's it's it's, it's stupid. Like we're just paying um, more because of the fact that we're not dealing with it in the correct order and the way in which any society should be dealing with it. And like that's infuriating because it's so obvious. And then you've got the crazy situation across the ambulance service and the lack of people across a whole range. I've been on your show loads of times in relation to the lack of intervention services for people uh, with disabilities or uh, children or people with autism. And that creates accentuated problems down the road for all these people, creates extra costs for the health service, extra costs for the taxpayer. Like, we've got to really change totally around the order in which we prioritise and deal with people at a very early stage, whether they're young or old or in the middle. 
and the the minister is he is he up to this? Is he, you know is he capable? Look, I, of that? I mean, look at what happened in, in in the budget, for example. You know, he was, yeah, I, I've had my issues with Stephen Donnelly John for years, um, uh, particularly during some certain things during COVID and a number of other uh, issues. Um, I do think it's probably broader than him. Um, um, I don't want to get into personality politics, um, but I do think it's broader than just him. I think there's a whole of government issue here. Um, I also think there's an issue between the Department of Health and the Department of Public Expenditure. And I think all of this, you know, in the lofty towers of you know the bubble that is government buildings, that is um, you know those departments. And at the end of the day, what happens is across your show and many other shows, uh, people come on with their stories. They don't hear those stories. All they see is lines and budgets and who's going to win this discussion between the departments and ministers fighting and all of this. They don't see the real stories. They don't see... They don't, the bubble is the bubble up there. They don't see outside it, unfortunately, in many cases. And it's up to public representatives like myself, dare I say, like government TDs who are supporting the government um, to actually you know, listen to those people who have these issues, listen to the people who have been on your show this week, uh, bring those stories up, uh, magnify them, and make sure that the change happens. On a happier note, some great news for Nina this week with the announcement about lunch bag and that seven and a half million euro expansion over seven hundred additional jobs as well. I mean, it, it's it's a great success story, isn't it? That's one of the best days for Nina, Fran. Um, you know, we've worked very hard on this for many years. It's another uh, jobs boost to Nina, which uh, has become a, a fantastic town um, in the centre of Ireland. Um, the uh, 240 full-time jobs, 450 part-time jobs across the country, and they need to fill about 40 of them pretty quickly, Fran, as I think you were told yesterday. They came to me about four years ago, looked for a site, the old dawn site inside Nina. We um, we showed them around. Um, I have to compliment Joe McGrath, Marcus O'Connor, uh, Anthony Fitzgerald, the Tipperary County Council, uh, the lads in Lunchbag, um, Rain Angle and uh, Geraldine uh, uh, both, uh, you know, visited the site um, and bought the site, and then they started work there. Um, but, you know, the they have been planning for this for years because the trajectory of the school's meals program um, was only going one direction. It's a great success. I know from it personally, my own wife works in the primary school, and I see it day to day. But also, for underprivileged kids, for kids in less schools, um, you know, a hot meal uh, is is really, really, really important. So they've been planning for this for, for a while and they've put in, put in a, a 7.5 million investment in an extension which Tiberi County Council sold them land towards um, uh, in the last year or so and that extension will be commencing soon with a view to obviously by next year they're going to go over 100,000 meals. Imagine 100,000 meals, it'll be over that, I'd say it'll be about 120,000 meals a day where kids have identified what they want to eat, mm. they arrive on their desk. And these are hot meals, it. aren't they? Hot these are hot meals, meals yeah, and, yeah. and their bit of fruit, etc. Yeah. Uh, they rise on their desk with their name on it, personalised. I mean, it's incredible. Mm. It's, it's, I mean, and <clears throat> it'll go from strength to strength. I mean, I, I know the lads uh, you know, have plans, and I expect that in a year's time we'll be talking about another um, expansion as regards uh, people who uh, they'll require to work for them oh, on top good. of what they announced. It's, it's great news indeed. No. And in fairness, fairness to the likes of Des Brazel, uh, Lauren Hart, who, are, uh, uh, who work inside there doing the operations and the food production. Like there's people from all over uh, Tipperary going to be implied there, not just the Nina, people will be coming in from outside. There's a range of different roles 
uh, that will suit so many different people, not just operatives, people who are drivers, people working in middle management, logistics, um, HR, mm. range of other areas And there's well. part-time opportunities for people that might have to yeah, consider childcare. Childcare, part-time working yeah. uh, and all of that. It's an incredible success story. The, the only issue is that finding staff nowadays for anything really has its own difficulties. Do you, do you see that as an impediment to well, look, moving uh, forward? Finding staff, finding, finding staff across the board is, is an issue now in Ireland. Um, I spoke about home health earlier when we were talking about health. Uh, they, you know, obviously, if you pay people enough, you know, you should be able to get them and you know the working conditions and all of this. One advantage I'd say lunchbag have. Uh, and I know quite well, is that, uh, you know, it often suits people's kind of working or yes. kind of life. Uh, if you have young kids going to school in the early home in time to pick them up um, for people who are driving out early and home early, like there's a range of, and the the lads can be somewhat flexible with some with some roles as well. So there's a higher degree of flexibility uh, in relation to many of these roles, which may suit people who have young kids or who, want to work a certain amount of hours. Uh, obviously, the lunch bag don't uh, operate at full capacity during the summer, so there's summer holidays when people want to spend time with their children. So all in all, you know, um, you know, I'd be focused, but there's no doubt um, Nina alone uh, probably won't fill these jobs, and Nina and outskirts won't fill these jobs, but we'll probably have to, you know, hopefully bring people yes. from other areas like Ross Gray and other areas and as Just well. for any listeners interested, it's hr at thelunchbag.ie. Yeah, I'd killed by Geraldine and Ray if I don't say, look, there's jobs there immediately. So anybody uh, who has any interest, uh, please contact them at, at hr at lunchbag.ie because, at thelunchbag.ie because um, it's all available on their website, but they're looking for, and even if a role isn't advertised on the website and people don't think they have the fit, they may very much have a fit because the lads are expanding at such a pace um, that, you know, they're happy to, to see as many CVs coming in as possible. And if they can fit people in, they'll fit them in because they have to fill these roles. There's a demand on their services. They're going to grow. Uh, they're a huge success story. And I'm so delighted that they to help them come to Nina. It's a great town for them because of the motorway, because of access. Mm. And there's also additional, uh, you know, jobs going to be generated uh, are downstream from this because obviously they're going to be requiring more food. Um, they're going to be requiring a number of other services into their factory as well from local people. So, you know, there's downstream jobs across this as well. So That's all right. in all, it's a fantastic well, day. It's all, always, always good to have a good news story. Before I go, just briefly, could I get a comment from you on that big uh, cabinet row yesterday, that proposal by Minister Roderick O'Gorman to make Ukrainian refugees source and pay for their own accommodation after 90 days. What, what, what are you making of that? It's all over the newspapers today. Yeah, I, I'm very surprised at this um, because this is a very sensitive topic. Um, it's obvious that with the scale of refugees coming into this country, Roderick O'Gorman felt that he had to do something. Um, he may be trying to, um, you know, get a compromise bounce. This might be the extreme of it, and he might be uh, trying to maybe bounce the government colleagues into accepting something mm-hmm. uh, more moderate than that. That often happens in politics. You go at the extreme in order to get something where you really want to go. Um, but ultimately here, you know, our capacity as a country... Um, I'm very pro-refugee. I'm very pro-supporting everybody coming into the country. Uh, I believe that, you know, I, for instance, there's many um, the, uh, refugees who are coming from Ukraine working in various different businesses that I know of, which I very much welcome. Uh, and it's good, and we actually need workers. Um, but on top of that, I just feel that 
at a government level, we haven't we haven't pushed forward with some plans that we really should have. And the one obvious one, which is is the modular home, um, we have a, a fantastic factory inside Nina um, that does these as well. And the scale of which we should have been doing these for the last two years has never reached what it should have been. That would not be a panacea, but it would be a huge contribution. And not alone that, but these homes are so fantastic that actually, from a social housing point of view, they would fit that if the war ended in the morning as well, which obviously it won't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it wouldn't be money lost. They'd last for up to 60 years. That's just one example where we simply haven't been at the races as regards to production levels that we should have been at to house these people. All right. Uh, Alan, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Frank. Good morning Thank to you. Deputy Alan Kelly of Labour uh, speaking to us uh, this morning. 1800-938-007. The text and WhatsApp 83 Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie The Citizens' Assembly on Drugs Use has published 36 recommendations to the government on changing legislation following their final meeting over the weekend. The Assembly recommended that the government take a health-led approach to personal drug use to reduce the harm caused by illicit drugs. But one listener has an issue with the Citizens' Assembly having such a sway, and John joins me now. Good morning, John. Morning, Fran. How are you? What's your issue with the... The Assembly, John? Well, there seems to be an Assembly, a Citizens' Assembly set up now for almost everything. And to me, Fran, I describe it as a cop-out. I didn't vote or anyone in the country for anybody on that Citizens' Assembly. We had one there for the, the Holy Eight Amendment, mm. and they ended up that there was a husband and wife actually were serving on that Citizens' Assembly. Now, how did that happen? Who picks these people on the Citizens' Assembly, right? I mean... Uh, well, they're randomly you know, selected, uh, to the best of well, my knowledge. Well, so we're told. Yeah. Yeah, no, maybe it is a conspiracy theorist within me and the suspicious uh, personality maybe that I have. I'm not happy with it. And the reason I'm not happy, Fran, as I said again, getting back to my previous point, I didn't vote for anyone or anyone in the country on that Citizens' Assembly. It's a cop-out. Because what they do then, they take the findings of the Citizens' Assembly, which they did previously, right? And they say the recommendations, right? But again, it's a get out of jail clause for the government, the people that were elected, the people that are supposed to do the job that they were elected to do, right? And then if anything goes wrong, they can blame it on the Citizens' Assembly. Now, I don't agree with decriminalising drugs, and I'll tell you why. We already have a massive problem with two legalised drugs. One is alcohol, the other is cigarettes. Mm-hmm. The cigarettes were being launched today on the market. They wouldn't see the light of day because we know the harm that they cause, the devastation. There's people going into graveyards every single day on the back of the abuse of alcohol and cigarettes. So why in the name of God would we legalise another two substances like cannabis Mm. and cocaine and then say it's only for personal use? It's obviously, Fran, that people are not taking drugs a big percentage of the, the people in the country, because they're illegal, number one, okay? And they don't want to end up before the courts or whatever. 
and they also don't want to be funding uh, gangsters and criminality. But the minute that you legalise it and say it's for personal use only, right, that means we're all, they're always using the, the model of port, a portugal, right? Yeah, sure and enough, the, the criminality went down as the gas people have been charged. Did, but the, yeah. the, the use of, of the products then went up. And the same thing will happen here because what was illegal yesterday, and if it's legal today, it's obviously the nose in your face, man. People are going to take the substance then why? Because it's legal. Could I put it to you, John, that the so-called war on drugs, it's failed miserably. I mean, not just here, but right across the world. It's, It's failed miserably. So do we not need to get creative in some way about this? Well, I was listening to your discussion earlier on with Alan Kelly and the whole uh, crisis in health. Yeah. And uh, we already you know going to put more pressure on GPs and hospitals because it's obviously if people are going to be taking two more substances, right, they are going to get addicted to it. They're going to end up with their GP, who's already under massive pressure. They're going to end up in hospitals, who's already under uh, massive pressure as well. So this thing is, a, it, it, look, this thing is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. I do not agree with it. And I know a lot of people are... So you think have we'd problems. have a bigger problem if we decriminalised personal possession? Of course, because, oh, okay. I mean, this obviously, like, I mean, if cigarettes were illegal yesterday and they were legal today, so people are going to walk into the shop and say, give me a packet or whatever. It's the same with their cannabis and the cocaine. I mean, it's obviously, as I said, using the unsticketer that the Portuguese model being used, but what the neglected people is uh, that they use the criminality side of it went down, sure, boy, because people weren't criminalised. But the use went up, and the same thing is going to happen here. Mm. We have enough problems in the health sector here now with people trying to get into hospital, years waiting for operations, children for scoliosis, mental health is, is on the floor because I know people working in it. And this is the best we can do now. Put together a group of unelected people to make recommendations to legalise drugs. And Basically, this... This well, well you know that they're not talking about legalising, they're talking about decriminalising, so I'm not sure how much of that is semantics. But, it, but, but it, did you find it interesting, it, though, that the Assembly voted by a margin of just one against legalisation, against full legalisation? What did you make of that? I mean, that was very close, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was close. Like, I mean, but, you know, at the same time, again, to me, we've got a guy, like, as I listened to Alan Kelly there a while ago in your first interview, I mean, the book stops, like, at the Minister for Health. The, the overall book stops with the teacher of the country, right? Like Harry Truman, the one of the former presidents of the United right. States of America, had a sign up in his desk the, the stops book here. stops yeah. here. Yeah. Right? In other words, I'll take the blame if something goes wrong. Yeah. But like farming this stuff out like the citizens' assemblies and whatever and saying it's a random selection of people, so therefore the people have spoken. Well, I don't agree with that. Because if this in turn, if the government take on those recommendations, right, and they can say, well, look, that this is a hundred people picked at random, right? And this is the people speaking, and this is what they want. And then we end up with two more legalized, uh, legal substances that are going to cause havoc with the health sector and the crisis is in. This is ridiculous. Right. The legalization, by the way, was on the sale of of uh, cannabis. I, I presume that the the government, though, I mean, you know, they might look at the recommendations, of, but they'll also listen to medical professionals because I know medical professionals are very concerned about cannabis use and they speak about short and long-term effects of the drug, particularly yeah, on, yeah. on mental health and you mentioned mental yeah. health there earlier of on. Course. So yeah, I yeah. presume they would take on board recommend, recommendations, not just from the Assembly, but from others as well. Well, I, they should listen to the medics because we, we had um, a guy here, he's a doctor, Chris Luke and Cork here, and um, 
like he said, the amount of people he saw, like I mean, for for cannabis with uh, psychosis problems and damage that was done, uh, severe psychosis, man, which there is no coming back from, unfortunately, right? He said he was shocked, and this is what we're proposing, you know, like I mean, that the government take this on board and possibly could run with it. That we're going to legalise two more substances to an already overburdened health sector, like to an already overstrained uh, society that we have, and. This is the best they can come up with. I'm sorry. No. Well, let me put it to you then, John. What What would you do if you were to take immediate steps in the so-called war on drugs? What would you do? Well, definitely, I would have more people going in, to, especially recovering addicts or people that you know had a terrible life and their families and and broke up and whatever. Um, going to schools and talking, especially to secondary school uh, people, I would have more medics going in. You know, but I, I don't think at the end of the day, even you talk about the war on drugs, man, but even the size of America, they mm. haven't thrown in the toll there and they have a massive problem, right? And also, like, I must, you must factor this in as well. Well, there I'm are areas of America where, where cannabis is is completely legal and there's, oh, there's there is, outlets yeah, and shops. And, yeah. mm. But what, this, this point, uh, which I suppose, I don't know, it's just really upsets me. The fact is that Ireland, like the people, have been so, so, what should I say, selfish mm. that now we know that, like, as a buddy of mine said to me, we were discussing this, he said, but should they are taking the drugs anyway, John? I said, yeah, but what you don't understand, if you didn't go along and make it legal for just for personal use, there's more people going to try it. And it's like, what annoys me, friend, is that, like, where, how did we get here? Why did the people of Ireland get so selfish that they just don't care anymore about their own health, about society? about the overburdening health sector and they're presenting themselves with doctors with psychosis and other problems. I mean, how did this happen? How did we get here as a society? And how do you think it happened, John? I think people just got selfish and it just grew and grew and grew like a, like a massive tumour and uh, it's just right across the board. I think people have become very selfish, I think, in this country. Like, I think we have lost something. Mm. And it's something, I don't know, where we, where we get back. And, and we all had great hope uh, during COVID because we were talking about, you know, people relying on each other and communities yeah. supporting uh, each other and that kind of thing. And then all of a yeah. sudden, lockdown stopped and that was gone again. Yeah, this is it. I mean, you know, so, I mean, you'd be saying, how did this happen? How do we get here? But... To me, like, we elect the government and the government is supposed to lead. And I don't agree with uh, unelected people making recommendations that will possibly be listened to. I just don't agree with that. Right. And the notion, again, of Mr Truman and that sign on his desk, the buck stops here. I mean, do you get that notion that there's any leader prepared to say the buck stops here? I don't. I think the, I think the politics in this country is rudderless at the moment. I think it really is. I mean... You have the likes of Michal Martin, like if he really wanted to make a difference in, to his party and to the country. Uh, the minister, he stepped down from the rotating T-shirt plan. He should have taken on one of the tougher portfolios, like, I mean, something like housing and health, right? Mm. But no, to, to take on the role of foreign affairs, which mm. allows you to wear the shiny shoes and stuff around in the UN and Brussels. Mm. You know, that's and and is that today. because he has an eye to the future for himself? Well, I think there's, and there's another problem. There's so many egos going on. Mm. We all know, know what happened with the budget the other day. Apparently there was a blazing row with... Uh, with Daniel, you know, because he wanted extra money, he was told he wasn't getting it right. Yeah. So that's complete disarray. Like, and it's the people of Ireland are suffering, and it's not right. 
All right, John, always good to talk to you, and thanks yeah, very much too. indeed. Thanks thank you. Much. Thank you, John. Thank, uh, you. thank you, and good morning to you. 83 311 uh, The text and WhatsApp, of course, you can speak to Ali, and it won't cost you. It's a free phone number. That's 1800-938-007. Tomlins in Templemore, and he says, I completely agree. Uh, with John, decriminalisation is legalisation. The Citizens' Assembly is uh, purposely picked to include a large majority of left liberal citizens. Well, they would disagree profoundly with you on that, I'm sure. And uh, Tom goes on to say, legalising cannabis and cocaine is asking for trouble in a country that can't manage its health service. Our government are trying to push the left-wing green ridiculous agenda this is Tom in uh, Templemore today. All right, we'll take a break back in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. Brendan is in uh, Ross Gray. He says, Fran, it's an absolute disgrace and frightening that 130 people were on trolleys in UHL on Monday. Just think of it this way. It's the equivalent of eight hurling teams and ten subs, says Brendan. Now, that certainly puts it in perspective, does it not? The Be Media Smart campaign is designed to encourage people to stop, think and check that the information that they're getting from whatever source is accurate and reliable. Across October and November, uh, the Stop, Think, Check message will be delivered across all media in Ireland and there will be opportunities to learn more about how to recognise accurate and reliable information via the Community Training Programme. Now, Dr Eileen Collity is an Assistant Professor in the School of Communications and Deputy Director of the Institute for Media, Democracy and Society at Dublin City University and she joins me now. Good morning to you, Eileen. Good morning. And thank you so much indeed for coming on with us today. Why is this campaign necessary, Eileen? Well, media literacy really began back in the, the 90s and the, the, the reasons for it were quite different then. Well, in some ways they were quite different, but basically the idea is that we're surrounded by media and members of the public need to have some understanding of how the media works to be able to be uh, empowered to make sure that they can evaluate the, the information they're looking at. And that might be advertising, if you think of a lot of small children, also a lot of older people when they're online can't tell the difference between an advert and a piece of genuine uh, content. And that's, that's just not good for people. So the whole point of media literacy is to give people some control over the media they consume. And obviously then in recent years with disinformation and everything else, it's become even more important. So how does the campaign work then in terms of informing us about how we should make up our mind about this? Media Literacy Ireland is a kind of national association full of lots of different kinds of bodies. So there are lots of public libraries there, uh, media companies, also um, academics and schools. And they've all come together to support uh, this campaign. And it's really just about putting that core message out there that if you just take a moment to do those three things, especially the first one, just to stop and ask yourself whether a headline is credible, whether a social media post is credible, that can do an awful lot. Because when you think about social media or indeed any media, we're encouraged to consume it very quickly and then move on to the next thing and the next thing. And that's where we can be maybe uh, manipulated or we mightn't pay enough attention. So it's really just about 
slowing down for a moment. Yeah, social media journalism, if you want to call it that, though, has all gone very sophisticated now. And even if it's disinformation or misinformation, it can get through um, to uh, people. So, I mean, what about making up your mind on that? Well, it's very difficult to to make up uh, your mind. And I think the thing with social media is that it puts a huge burden on individuals because they are bombarded with all of these different claims and they don't have time to go investigating um, whether something is true or not or some of the more outrageous things that they see. And a lot of content online, whether it's by uh, news sources or citizen journalists or disinformation sources, they tend to be trying to, you know, rile us up to make us very angry or to make us very fearful about something. And when we do that, it kind of overrides our better judgment and we automatically share the scary story or share the story that makes us angry at a politician or whoever it is. Yeah, it's interesting. Of course, you know, everybody has their own ideology, I suppose, as well. And one person's misinformation is another person's gospel truth. Yeah, and there's an important distinction there between, you know, things that can be factually verified and things that are opinions. And we should be very, very clear on those. So there are, you know, you don't have a right to make up false claims or to um, disregard facts because we have to try and base our, our actions on facts and evidence. But then there are other things where people just fundamentally disagree about how we should live or what the right thing to do is. And nobody's suggesting that you tell people uh, what to think. But when we are surrounded by a media environment that has an awful lot of just false information that disempowers people, that undermines their democratic rights to make informed decisions. And do you have an opinion on, I mean, some people are very incensed at the notion that uh, the so-called mainstream media has a narrative and often has a a single narrative, and I'm thinking in this case on something like like COVID, for example, or in the most recent case, I suppose, the Israeli-Hamas war. Um, What about that? Because there's certainly evidence that there's been single narrative. Is that, are you... Are you involving that in your stop, think and check message as well? Well, no, I think that would be quite a loss for for a media literacy campaign message, which is simply to get people to just take a moment. But that also applies to any media you're consuming. It's not just uh, social media. The issue of mainstream media narratives is is quite an old one, and it very much depends on the kind of topics you're talking about. It's it's basically the idea of a consensus. So is there a consensus amongst uh, journalists? In Ireland, we don't actually have much uh, evidence uh, of this. There's quite a competitive, uh, vibrant media landscape. If one journalist is not reporting something, someone else will. Uh, But there are certainly um, cases in other countries where there tends to be a kind of a a groupthink around a topic. For example, often in relation to, say, politics in Washington or London, you have a core group of journalists that went to the same schools as those politicians. They live with them. They're all quite wealthy. And that can create maybe just a very familiar uh, environment for them. Um, That's not, I think, uh, an issue we have here quite so much. I'm not so sure about that because uh, during the the last American uh, presidential election, I mean, it was very evident to me and certainly to a lot of our listeners that the the national media certainly was anti-Trump. And, I mean, that was pretty obvious right right, right across the board. I mean, well, what about something like that, Annie? Well, there's two different things. So first of all, news media and newspapers have always been free to take positions. So in the UK, famously, the Murdoch-owned papers would align themselves with either the Conservatives or the Tories. Um, so 
that their freedom as private uh, companies. It's one of the reasons why public media and in broadcasting, even here, even if you're private media, there are rules around uh, balance. Those rules simply do not apply to online and they do not apply to uh, print media. In the case of Trump, I think part of the antagonism was very much because he was lying and very clearly lying about many things and people feared that he was breaking uh, fundamental values of democracy. So it would be very extreme objectivity to disregard uh, all of that in how he is covered. But I take your point that clearly um, uh, the media was mm. opposed to him, but I would say they're, they're entitled to do that as private companies. Yeah, it's interesting. Of course, hindsight is very important in this as well. I mean, when you, you speak about Trump's uh, lies, but certainly there, there's question marks around around Biden at this point as well. So it's it's interesting where, where hindsight is concerned on what appears in our media too, isn't it? It is, and I would also say that American politics is a very, very particular um, is a very particular domain because these very are polarized, powerful isn't it? Yeah. people in the world. The whole country is very polarized. Uh, their whole system is deeply problematic. It is a country that's in a crisis in lots of ways. So I don't think it's a, a good model for, for what we have in Ireland. But what we should be in Ireland is very conscious of how that happens, of how you get uh, media companies that maybe drive uh, very aggressive narratives. You get politicians who then will use lies and use distortions. And of course, politicians have always lied. Everybody knows that. It's about the extent of it and just blatant disregard for truth. And I think we have to be quite wary of that in Ireland. And even just the tone of how we converse and how we converse with people we disagree with and just be more, mm. more civil. Well, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be lovely? But, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing more and more antagonism. I, 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 I find it very difficult now to, to listen to, you know, narrative on anything very much because people are very polarised. And then, you know, people who, as you say, go about their daily lives and don't have time to interrogate all this properly, uh, they, they find it very hard to make up their mind. And I suppose this plays into what you're saying uh, about social media. Yeah, and the fear is that it turns people off. I mean, yeah, the, the kind yeah. of the righteous indignation that you hear coming from all quarters. And of course, people who have a cause or if they perceive an injustice, of course, they're very passionate about it. And a degree of passion is good. But you have to remember that there are other people and that you can disagree in a civil way and that we all will have different opinions at times and always um, have done. But I think for everybody else, it's, it's just too much. And when you think of people being worried about paying the rent and the rising mm. bills and everything yeah. else. Trying to navigate all of that is um, it's just overwhelming. Well, a most interesting discussion. Really good to talk to you today, Dr. Eileen Cullity. Uh, thank you very much indeed for coming on with us. Thank you. Good morning to you. That's uh, Dr. Eileen there, Assistant Professor in the School of Communications, Deputy Director of the Institute for Media, Democracy and Society at Dublin City University. Talking to us there about the Stop, Think, Check message that will be delivered across all of uh, the media in Ireland and uh, opportunities, I suppose, to learn more about how we can recognise what is accurate and reliable and all of that. Speaking of which, news is on the way. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. This tip today. 
with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, fuck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, fuck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. And uh, welcome back to the second hour of Tip Today, 1800-938-007. That's the free phone number if you want to have a chat with uh, Ali. But of course, you can text in WhatsApp 083-311-3311. If you're into gardening, towards the end of the programme, we'll be chatting about gardening to Ulta Nesbitt. So if you want to leave a gardening query with us, we'd be delighted uh, with that. Alyssa says, why can't the county councils build modular homes? for the people who are already waiting on housing lists for years to be housed. It's disgraceful the length of time that people are on lists to be housed. Well, that's that's for certain, and that's a discussion that has happened on this programme, in fact, uh, over the years as well. And it's not a case of building modular homes. I mean, they, they, they can be... Uh, just sourced from, um, Alan Kelly was making the point there that there's um, an outlet in Limri- in uh, Nina that uh, look after mod- modular homes as well. So maybe it's something that should be uh, looked at as part of a solution indeed to our housing uh, issues as well. Lots of people on to us about various different things this morning. Huge agreement with uh, John who spoke to me uh, as well earlier on on the programme and thank you for that. Uh, Michael O'Doherty is a pioneer in the field of healthcare, best-selling author who has 28 years experience in guiding many, many people indeed back to health. He's also a very uh, popular guest on the programme and I'm delighted to say that Michael is in studio with me now. Good morning to you, Good Michael. Good morning again, friend. Thank and you. fresh and well you're looking as well. Thank did you. you thank did you. you have a foggy trip? Foggy from... trip, yeah. It was yeah, it was foggy enough now on yeah. the way down this morning, you know, but look, once you take your time on the roads, it's, take and it easy, when, you, yeah. when you're leaving, when you come from Limerick outwards anyway, you have to no choice but to go slow, you know. Indeed, so. yeah. And many people who are sitting in cars for hours, uh, sedentary lifestyle, people like me sitting here at computers all day. Indeed, the impact on general health, Michael, yeah, of I, that lifestyle. I, I think we haven't really addressed the real problems associated with the sedentary lifestyle. We hear people talking about it a lot. Uh, sometimes people don't understand the implications of that. Uh, apart from how one's behaviour changes, we'll chat about that. But I think a lot of people don't seem to understand that we have a second heart. And our second heart really are our calf muscles. And the reason that they're, it's, it's called our second heart is because the calf muscles pump the venous blood up to the heart and also pumps the lymph system up as well. So when you're sitting for prolonged periods of time, and that can be just maybe an hour, two hours, <clears throat> you know, at any one given time, what's happening is the blood and lymph is pooling in the lower part of the body and that means then the the heart has to work harder to pump uh, blood, oxygen and nutrients throughout the body and to the brain in particular uh, and, and particularly in the afternoon this is why we see people who sit a long time really really suffer a lot with fatigue in the afternoon and of course then this leads to behaviour so it's really about people beginning to appreciate and understand that every hour at the very least you have to be up and walking around and moving your body or at least getting those calf muscles to squeeze properly so that they can pump those uh, that, that blood, that venous blood. Well, Michael, I never never heard about this. I never knew about that. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing This is the thing about it. We, we, we kind of take it for granted that, well, you know, our heart is, is, is a muscle as well, of course, like our calf muscles. Our, half, our heart does all the work. Well, it actually doesn't. You know, it has to work harder if you don't help it. So uh, this is something that people need to begin to realise that if we don't learn how our body functions, then we're never going to be able to mm. uh, appreciate why it is we have symptoms, you know, we have swelling and 
all of that in our legs and uh, think of uh, elderly people at home for example people maybe with diabetes people with underlying health issues and they're sitting for prolonged periods of time lorry drivers uh, as you say people sitting on cars I mean if you're uh, on, a, on a flight <clears throat> for anything more than four hours you run the risk of, of, of throwing off a DVT a deep vein thrombosis for example so the whole idea is that you have to wear socks now the thing is uh, and this is important and actually standing can be equally as bad if it's for prolonged periods. So if, if you're standing a lot, you need to make sure you're standing on the right uh, mat. So retail workers, mm-hmm. all retail workers, you know, nurses, all absolutely, of yeah. retail, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, everything is pooling down. Now, if you're walking and moving, then th- there's a, that, that's a help, obviously. But the problem is that if you are standing a lot, then the calf muscles. This is why you know, women and indeed men get problems with varicose veins. You know, because they become they come, they come under pressure. And of course, it causes lots of issues. So, yeah, the real key is if you're standing a lot to try maybe wear those socks. As I said, if you're sitting on a plane for four hours, it's not because you're on a plane. It's the fact that you're sitting for that long period of time. And and the thing is this, uh, this is the, the surprising thing on the research around this, is that you could then be going to the gym twice, three times a week. It has no influence on this. No influence wow. whatsoever. So this is the research that unless you're getting up for probably 10, 15, 10 minutes at least uh, every hour to get up and walk around. And this is why everybody who comes to my clinic, I advise them, get an extendable desk. So for me in my own clinic, I never sit in my own clinic bar I'm doing my work. Yeah. If I'm doing, if I'm on the computer, if I'm showing people stuff on my interactive screen, I'm always standing and I have a rubber mat specific, uh, specifically uh, for the, the standing to help with, with, with uh, pressure on the legs. So people often say, I have restless legs. Mm. You know, mm. restless legs syndrome. Especially at night. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. People often have restless legs because they're sitting down for long periods throughout the day and you think about it you're, you're, you're travelling to work in your car uh, you're going from your car into your job you're sitting in your job in front of a desk all, we, all, all day uh, if you're not getting up you know after a couple of hours or at least after an hour you're running into problems then you're driving home then you're sitting on the couch in the evening then you're going from there to possibly bed so when you look at the amount of uh, time that you're active uh, in the modern day uh, then you can see how many problems this can cause so people with this restless leg syndrome aches and pains That's- in their legs yeah, you know, and and yeah, you can take magnesium, and all of that helps. Magnesium is really, really helpful. Uh, but again, you know, I would advise anybody before they take anything to certainly seek their, their medical advice. Something you said there, though, that is a very big statement because a lot of us who might go to the gym think that that sort of immediately then alleviates all of our issues. That we can sit and we can do whatever we want. Yeah. We go to the gym to fix things, but that's not the case. No, the evidence doesn't suggest that at all. While exercise is absolutely brilliant, and when it comes to because it's not just about the uh, the heart and that, but also over prolonged periods, if you're not uh, getting proper uh, blood oxygen nutrients to the brain, is this leading to further cognitive decline? So when we look now at the research around cognitive of the cognitive decline in younger people, uh, we look yeah. at Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, you know these types of conditions. Uh, we have to appreciate this is something also people don't understand. Your brain is your biggest vascular organ. It's the biggest, the biggest, the most vascular activity is going on in your brain. So when you think about that, like there are processes in the brain that we don't seem to understand. We think, well, it's a ball of fat or jelly and if we can drop it on the floor and it looks like jelly. It's not at all. It's nothing like that. So when we think that, uh, because when you, when you start to understand your own body and you understand blood flow, because energy carries blood, blood carries oxygen and nutrients around the body. So if the blood isn't flowing to the brain, so how are you getting your energy? Now, the thing you have to think about here, 
if the blood isn't flowing to the brain, you're not getting the benefits of the food. So even if you eat good food, if the blood isn't getting to the brain, then you're not getting the oxygen and nutrients. So your brain requires 25% of the energy uh, from your food on a daily basis. Now, that energy has to be the right type of energy, of course. It can't be because the brain requires a drip feed of glucose, not a, a sudden boost of sugar. And right. energy like, you know, from chocolate, sweets, yeah. biscuits, cakes, yeah. coffee. That's a certain boost. The brain doesn't like that because then the pancreas secretes high levels of insulin to break that down. And ultimately then your brain gets tired again. So it needs a continuous drip of glucose. And that has to come from the right sources, some fruit and, you know, you, using the right types of food and all of that kind of thing. And what happens is, you see, that, uh, you know, when, when you when, what happens really then is that when you're starting to feel tired in the afternoon and the brain is, the blood isn't getting to the brain, you're not getting the oxygen and nutrients well you're getting that dip that three four o'clock dip yeah. and the automatic thing then is well the brain learns how you deal with this is you take your sweets your coffee your sugar and so on and suddenly then you're into a behavior and that behavior then is a dangerous behavior because we now know that sedentary lifestyle absolutely causes health conditions apart from what we just talked about uh, it causes diabetes uh, we know it can lead to heart disease you know, so there's so many different problems. Then, of course, we have a lot of women and people looking to uh, with weight gain because the organs inside they're being fed. They're being you're sitting on them all the time. There's nothing moving, and if you have nothing moving, you have stagnation. If you have stagnation, then you cannot be healthy. So it's a very unhealthy way of living. It's certainly the kind of education that needs to get out there, isn't it? I mean, it, so well, much it, I've learned from the last ten minutes here, even. You know? Yeah, and that's it. You see, you know, for me, I'm continuously learning, learning, learning. I really want to figure out more and more about why it is, uh, you know, and I would do a lot of uh, online courses and programs with neuroscientists and neurologists and talk with various vascular professors and, you know, get into the real nuts and bolts and try to bring it, uh, you know, in, into the public domain in a language that's easy to understand. And as I said to you, we're, we're, look, we're the architects of our own problems, but we don't realise it because like you say, we're not educated to understand, you know, the nature of our behaviour on a day-to-day uh, basis. So we absolutely can prevent a lot of modern day illnesses like we know that exercise now has been shown to to actually prevent certain types of cancers for example we know that exercise is so so important and for the brain it is the one fundamental thing that has really been shown to be very very effective but like we see a lot of people going away and are going on diets we know realistically the science and the the statistics tell us that you know the people who go on a diet just on the diet alone to lose weight or whatever the case may be we know that only 10% of them only eventually you know benefit from that and maintain the weight loss because we're not really looking at the underlying cause of the problem and the neural programming and the way the brain developed and all of that kind of stuff from when we were when we were children. So there's a huge sort of uh, sort of array of issues that one has to look at. And we look at this in our clinics. We look at food as a behavior. And if we don't address our behavior, so people talk about, you know, positive thinking and negative thinking. I would like I often say to people, forget about thinking. Just look at positive behavior and negative behaviour. So if people were to get a blank sheet right now and if they were to put three headings on the top of that sheet, my good behaviour or my positive behaviour, my negative behaviour 
and my aspired behaviour. So your negative behaviour, you put down all the things you're doing on a daily basis. You know, we have this urgency lifestyle at the moment. We feel we need to be doing more and more and more and more, Mm -hmm. you know, and doing all these things. Look at all the negative behavioural patterns that you have developed. Look at the positive ones. Then look at your aspired behaviours. What would you aspire to be? Anybody out there listening to this say, what type of person, what would you aspire to be? What would your ideal pattern of behaviour be on a day-to-day basis? And then what you do is you look at the obstacles to that. And suddenly, if you start to change some of the, po- the negative behaviours, look at those and say, well, I could change that. I could reduce this. I could stop that. You know, start, mm. start listening to the subconscious mind. And Michael, program. have you thought about, I mean, you know, if you take aspiration, for example, I mean, yeah. we'd all aspire to have a healthy body and a healthy mind and all yes. of that. Why do we destroy ourselves? Why, why are we doing things that we know... Mm-hmm are bad for us? It's a very powerful question and this is the real question we've got to get into. It's the neural programming because from the moment we're conceived, the brain is developing. By the first trimester we have, our brain has fully developed. But our brain is fully developing from um, the age, uh, from that moment onwards, right up until the age of 25. But the brain is always changing and growing. Now, we don't seem to understand this. And we have a process in the brain, uh, glia cells and astrocyte cells, these are continuously cleaning the brain. When, just to go back briefly, when you have uh, poor behaviour or negative behaviour, what happens is we program the brain in that way. Now, this often affects our sleep. While we're sleeping, if we're not getting into the proper deep sleep restorative state, what's happening is that the brain is not able to clean itself. So the brain goes through a cleaning process. Lia cells, and particularly an earlier development is pruning. Any stress or any trauma in our lives can lead to dis- disruption in the functioning of our brain's processing. And what happens is when uh, our brain processing becomes disrupted, uh, then what happens, we adapt behaviours from a very early childhood. So we program our brain so our default program is that we might say well we're on a diet or whatever the case may be but yet we pull up at a garage and we walk in and we say Ash, I forget, I'll have I'll have that bar of chocolate yeah. it's you know I, I'm entitled to this I deserve my treat this is all a program this is all a learnt behaviour and the real key is to understand that and once you to under, once you start to understand that and get into that understanding of how our brain you know neurally wires you know that our brain wires and fires when we understand that we're wired that we're wired to fail nearly because of the way we're conditioned as children. You know, we're programmed nearly to fail because we're programmed not by uh, something that we've decided ourselves, but indeed by what others have decided for us and the environment we've grown up in. So this is really what happens then. And we think then that we can't solve our own problems. We think then that we've got to take this pill, that pill, go on this diet, that, that diet or the other diet. No. What happens is unless you get into understanding the ultimate cause of your behaviour, you're never really are addressing the problem. And often food is an addiction and I heard you talking about it earlier on when a gentleman but often food is an addiction like any addiction is an escape from pain and often when we get into understanding why people have a certain type of behaviour with food uh, we can really get back into some childhood issues and lots of that kind of stuff that we often see in our clinic so it can be hugely complex but this is the real cure for the problem the the big fear for many people certainly fear for me because my dad had had a form of dementia and um, <clears throat> that that is the big thing now isn't it yeah. i mean do you put the sedentary lifestyle down as a cause a contributing factor a contributing, a contributing factor, factor. Okay. look at the, but there's so many more people yeah, suffering now it appears to me anyway they are and they're really suffering from that because we need to understand how stress affects the brain we have failed to like we have breast check Fantastic. Baltic. You know, people go and have scopes, scans. Uh, we have heart check. 
but nobody checks the brain. And yet the brain is the organ we're using every day and we think, well, it just sits inside our skull and it's fine. You know, but yet, <clears throat> if you're suffering from tension and stress all the time, then what's happening is that is going to affect the functioning of the brain. It's going to restrict blood flow. If you're not getting blood flow, oxygen, nutrients to that brain, that brain is going to atrophy. It's going to shrink. Then certain uh, processes in that brain are going to become affected. Okay, and then what happens is memory, in particularly the memory uh, area, becomes affected. And uh, this is then why we're having so many problems now. Lack of exercise, lack of mobility. We're seeing the research. We're seeing the research that even though you may be genetic predisposed, okay, Okay, uh, the research is clearly saying we can prevent that. We can prevent a true proper lifestyle. Now, a lot of people talk about stress management. No, it's the wrong word to use. Life management, I like to use. Let's look at your life. How do you manage your life? How are you managing your health? How are you managing your day-to-day living? If you're managing your life, managing your day-to-day living, managing your time, managing your energy, it's about a life management strategy and program. There is no quick fix, no magic wand, no magic pill. There is no cure for these types of diseases. The key here is to prevent these problems. You prevent them through lifestyle. All of the evidence is emerging. I see a lot, lot more medical practitioners, you know, and various fields going into this area now because Mm. they see the real area. And we see so much money being invested in uh, in this country in in the health service. But there's nothing going into educating people about what you and I just talked about, where we need to get into Mm. the home and and educate people about And this would keep us out of the A&Es and it would keep us out of the hospitals. Absolutely. We have this idea that suddenly dementia or cancer or heart disease or diabetes just drops off the sky, that we wake up one morning and it appears. No. These problems, you know, in our early childhood, Mm. these problems can begin. From the moment of conception, from womb life, from early childhood living. So we need to begin to understand this early childhood process. I I was talking to a professor earlier on about disinformation and misinformation and all of that. You see, you talk about lifestyle. If you Google about this, you are just inundated with all sorts of opinions and all sorts of lifestyle choices and and, and plans and all of that. How how do you sort out what, what is proper. It is, it, is, it is a challenge to people and I'm, I'm doing this work uh, over 30 years now and for me it has been trial and error and I think you keep it very simple. There is no one diet. You can go into keto, the paleo, you can go all on the different diets. It's not going to make any difference. You can use the mindfulness, you can use all of these programs. People say, okay, mindfulness is equal to antidepressants in the treatment of depression. It might be equal to it in how it influences it, but it doesn't still deal with what causes the problem. So we still have to go back and deal with what causes the problem. What I have found in my clinic to be most effective, simplicity. Keep it simple. Okay, learn to eat properly. Learn to breathe properly. Learn to be uh, responsible for your health. Be mindful of your behaviours. A little bit of exercise and sleep. If you can eat properly, get proper sleep and do a regular exercise, okay, your life will be changed forever. It, it ain't, and it doesn't mean you don't enjoy the niceties of life. You can enjoy the niceties of life. But if you're sitting down every day like we've begun this conversation with, if you're sitting down and have a sedentary lifestyle and there is no blood and oxygen nutrients getting around your body and you start substituting that energy then with all of the, the wrong types of fats and energies and all that, then suddenly you're going to create the environment for illness. And that's the reality. And talk it. to me a little bit about food. I mean, you, you speak about diet and how important mm. that is. I mean, what, what are the no-nos? I mean, is it sweet stuff? Is well, it... well there's, look, at excess, the, all, again, all the research is there. 
the type of, of, of food that we're living in today, because of the convenient living, everything is packaged and processed. And yes. that's the problem. It's the packaged and processed foods. Now, you go to any supermarket and you walk down the aisles and you put all of the packets and the bottles and the tins and the cans and parents are investing money in this and their children. This doesn't feed your brain. This doesn't feed your body. So we're either investing money in our illness or we're investing money in our health. So the key is we need to eat fresh food. Cook it and eat it. This is what we have to do. People will say, oh, I don't have time. You better make time. Because if you don't make time to eat fresh food, go in, have your fruits, your vegetables, go to your butcher, buy your fresh meat, cook it, sit down as a family, communicate. One of the biggest things that has happened, I know you alluded to it earlier in a previous conversation, you were talking about COVID and we taught X, Y about COVID and COVID give people a little hint of this. But the, the, the biggest breakdown in our society has been community. That's been the biggest breakdown because when I grew up and you grew up, friend, we grew up in a community, we played GA, food was fresh, there wasn't mobile phones, you know, we went to the garden, we cooked fresh food, you know, there were a lot of expectations, yeah. all of this kind of, our model of living was totally different. Now we're living a model of, we have a model of living that is all about convenient living, convenient eating, convenient living. And if we're going to be pumping sugars and the wrong types of fats into our body, that's the big thing. If you could minimize the sugar, uh, particularly in in, 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 into, in your diet if you could eliminate the processed foods just I'm not going to be specific okay. but if you could eliminate all the processed foods buy fresh food cook it and eat it and no microwave you'll change it'll be a massive difference now that takes time and effort but, pe- but I do it at home I have to do it at home I'm not going to come in here and talk this language yeah. unless I do it so getting up in the morning have your poached eggs have your boiled egg have your oatmeal put your fruit in there's nothing wrong with that you know having your soup for dinner maybe a tuna sandwich or something like that and maybe spelt bread in the evening having your stir fry or you know <clears throat> all healthy veg and your meat and or your stews or something like that you want to put so- healthy wholesome food that gives you energy but what we're doing is all day long, if you're listening to the stories that I listen to in my clinic yeah, and I, I say to people, do you eat okay? And they say, oh yeah, our food is healthy. And when we sit down with them, they're not eating. They're not, and then they wonder why they're tired and sick and they've no energy and they're stressed and they've headaches and they've all these problems. Jerry uh, wants to know what do you think about alcohol where healthy living is concerned? I mean, Well, and, and all in moderation, Jer. Yeah. We do see the link between excessive alcohol and disease. We we know the links between that and cancers. We know the links between alcohol and um, and dementia, for example. We know there is a there is a there is a link. However, drinking at home has the research shows that drinking at home has a worse effect than drinking in a bar. Is that because of measures? Be, no, it? because no. of the social activity. Oh. Whatever way, the oh. research has shown that if people are out having a few drinks in a pub, having a chat and, and a crack with the lads, the body seems to be able to handle it different. Whereas if you're sitting down at home and you're looking at a screen and you're drinking, it has a much more negative impact on the body. This is recent wow. research. Am I looking very guilty here, so, I wonder? <laughs> so, somebody making a very good point as well in terms of natural food, and you speak about natural, fresh food and yeah. all, but how natural and fresh can the food be when the soil is often poisoned? And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You look at air it, pollution and all. It's yeah, a good point, isn't it? It, it is a very good point. Yeah. I mean, look at, uh, when, we look at when we look at the fruit we, we're buying in our health shops, or in our veg shops, sorry, uh, you know, we're clearly seeing that this stuff has left some other uh, country maybe three months ago. Yeah. So, but unfortunately, this is where we are. You know, we are at that point because of population, because people are forced out to work. People don't grow their food anymore. Look at, you know, we could spend a lot more time at having our own little greenhouse if we had that possibility out the back. But real, the reality is, 
in a lot of supermarkets now, I mean, in fairness to the likes of Tesco's and Super Valley and Dunn's and all those and, and Centra's and all that, we do see there is, they are making more effort in getting as much organic food mm. as, we, yes. as we can. And people would say, oh God, Michael, organic food is expensive. Listen, guys, if you think health is expensive, try illness. The cost, if you get ill to yourself, to your health, to your family, you know, it's huge. So don't value, uh, you know, uh, don't value yourself on the basis that, well, you know, it's too dear to buy it because the implications are huge. You know, I don't know if anybody has watched the programme on Netflix called Living to 100 or Live to 100. Mm. It clearly demonstrates that, you know, it's all about our model of living and if we have a proper life management programme and we learn to manage our lives strategically and smartly, we can prevent Right. A lot of illnesses. Somebody trying to drag you into controversy here. What does Michael think about red meat? Now and again, absolutely excessive red meat. There are there are problems associated with red meat again. But again, to go back to this question, uh, there are people who smoke a lot and who don't get lung disease. All right. There are people who eat a lot of red meat who will it'll have no impact on them. Everything in moderation. The bigger problem here, when it comes to food, is about metabolism. If you're stressed and anxious. What happens is it disrupts the digestive function, which means you cannot process the food properly and then it becomes a toxin. So then we associate the food with the disease. Do you get what I'm saying to you? Very interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. no, the food is not about what you eat. It's about what you don't excrete or it's about what's eating you. So, our, again, the research tells us that our body has the ability to metabolize that food you know, if it's all in moderation. So mix it up. You can have your vegetarian stuff. You can have your, uh, you know, your, 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 your meat and put everything in balance. Have your chicken and whatever. You know, have it in balance. This is people get into this extremist. If people spent more time concerning themselves with their emotional stress and finding time to unwind, because that's the biggest thing, society is wound up. If we could get people to spend more time unwinding, and this is what we find working with the energy system in the clinic, that it has the ability to unwind the pain patient to reset the patients all the different systems and then the body from there can begin to handle a lot of things. Very good and it will huge interest in our conversation today if people want to talk to you, meet you Michael, how can they do that? Yeah well michaelodoherty.com is our website or Francis you can give her a call on 87 2188 and we'd only be too delighted to help and I just want to thank the people from Tipperary who have come to the clinic and I'm hoping that it's benefiting them so I really really appreciate right, it. Well, we do our best for them. Always great to see you always great to have you on the show. Thanks very much indeed thank uh, you, Michael. Indeed. We'll take a break. We're back with more in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Well, I've been telling you all week that uh, our own Louise Morrissey is celebrating 35 years in country music and she's doing so in great style indeed right around the country, in fact, but with an extravaganza show that's happening at the Talbot Hotel uh, on uh, Friday week, in fact. And Louise is with me in studio. Good morning to you, Louise. Good morning, friend. 35 years. Really? I know, yeah, 35 years in the country music. I know I, it, the time has just gone by so fast. Hasn't it just? Yeah. It has. Um, the 3rd of March, 1988, in Barry's Hotel in Dublin, was my very first country music dance with my new band and the whole lot at the time. And, um, you know, and, and to be sitting here now 35 years later, you know, so, my That's God, I can't believe... Yeah. 
how how quickly the time went by. But yeah, and what a great. roller coaster of a thirty-five years. I mean, in fairness, I mean there was pretty much immediate success when you moved away from a successful folk act, the yeah. family act, mm-hmm. and then the country music. It happened really suddenly for you, didn't it? It did. I was very lucky and very blessed at the time. Yeah, um, you know, because when when you're new on the scene and people didn't know me at the time, like they knew the Morrissey's folk group but yeah. they didn't know me I was just the girl in the middle who never spoke on stage or <laughs> yeah. you know I just sang and played the guitar yeah. but um, yeah so people weren't sure then which one of the family I was then you know when this girl Louise Morrissey and her new band and the whole yeah. lot appeared and um, so yeah it was it was a completely different change literally overnight but something that I absolutely loved and and the great welcome I got from all the, the fans and all yeah. that, you know, just to be welcomed into the country music family, if you like. Of you course, know? and you were, and of course you have great friends, and we'll talk about that in just a little while as well. But I mean, it's notoriously difficult, particularly for a young woman, to yeah. make it in, in that business. So mm-hmm. all, all the more credit, I suppose, you know. Well, thanks very much, Fran. But yeah, it, it is a difficult business. I, I'd say even more so nowadays, you know. Is for, it worse for, now? I is would think so, yeah, now? for yeah. the young girls starting off. And, you know, and they're also beautiful and they're beautiful style and, yeah. you know, they're saving up their money or borrowing money or whatever to go and record, you know, songs. And, and they're really trying to get a little leg up in, in the business yeah. and, you know, get a little leg in the door. Um, you know, but I suppose th- there are a lot of platforms there nowadays, too, that weren't there when I, when I was starting. And, you know, you did all that show band scene yourself mm, years yeah, ago, friend, and you know yeah. what it was like. But... um yeah, there, there's just an awful lot of out, out there where it's, there's, it's you, you have to sort of come on with a big show. It's not yeah, just about just standing there and singing yeah, It's anymore. like a rock gig now, isn't it? Yeah, like you a, know, and the yeah, style and yeah. lights flashing. <laughs> you know, the, the whole lot. You know, yeah. you have to really make it into a, a visual yeah, and do you, do you also show. think if you were trying to start out as Louise Morrissey now, it would be it would be a different kettle of fish? Ah, but they mightn't even let me in the door now. If I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, if, if I was I'm starting sure off now, would, yeah. I know. But seriously, um, I I wouldn't like to be starting off again. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm happy where I'm at now. But you know, it's 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 been tough too. You know, at times, you know, the the travelling side of it is very hard. I was way up the country last night, and of course, coming home in the fog. And then, you know, to drive in today and fog, I said, my, my yeah, eyes no. feel like I have nails stuck in the rest of the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, uh, well, you don't look it. You don't look it. Let's put it that way. Thank, but, thank God for makeup. <laughs> yeah. Of course, in the middle of it all, then you, you had a car crash and, uh, you know, that halted things for a while and it did, made yeah. it difficult for you as well, yeah. didn't it? You know? Yeah. You know, things were really taking off for me at the time. It's 30 years ago now, for instance. I had that Is accident, 30 yeah, years? 30 years ago. So you just, were only five years into the I group. was only five years into the, the whole wow. new scene, the country music scene yeah. and new band and everything flying. And, and I had recorded an album in Nashville and was due to fly out to Nashville again like, that week to yeah. record another album. And really, I suppose, kind of on the crest of a wave at the time. Yeah. And everything was looking good and everything was great and great following built up and and all of that and uh, yeah so the the car accident kind of put everything on hold for a while but you know you get over those things too yeah and, but i yeah. almost admired the fact you you got back to it and you got back to traveling and driving again yourself after, yeah, after all. yeah. Well, was that difficult to get back into that it was, was it? at the start no yeah. and but you have to do it if you don't do it yeah. you never do it you yeah, know and yeah, you can't just sit at home all the time and um you know, because I, I'm not designed 
yeah, you know, that yeah. way. To you sit know, by I, the fire. <laughs> no, I, yes, certainly. Sometimes it's lovely. No, but yeah. I love being out and about and meeting people. And, you know, that that's a lot of it for me um, to be out on the road with music is it's the meeting people. It's meeting the other artists on the shows and a bit of chat going on, you know, yeah. backstage and on stage. The old gossip. Meeting pe- people around the show as well. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, You get all the news. Of course you, of course you do indeed. <laughs> You've been blessed and I suppose this is at the core of our business. You've been blessed with songs over the years, haven't you? I right have. right from the very start. Really. Yeah, I was very lucky that from the word go starting out with the band 30 years ago or sorry 35 years ago, uh, Nick McCarthy mm. in Bansha was very good to me with songs. Mm. He wrote um the Tipperary in my mind flying home to mm. Arlo, the tear um the night Daniel O'Donnell came yeah. to town like they were my first four hits. singles yeah. and and yeah. hits. Yeah. And um you know, like it, it was fantastic. The fact that they were original songs as well and forevermore, mm. you know, no matter who will record them, it's, oh, that's Louise Marcy's song. Of course. Yeah, you which, know, and it's nice to have yeah. that. Well, there know? were quality songs too. Yeah, you know? good I mean, songs. He was such a clever songwriter. Yeah, oh, Nick is a great songwriter. Yeah, yeah. And and I recorded a lot more of his songs over the years as album tracks as yeah. well. And um, yeah, a great guy, you know. Yeah. So I'm I'm always nagging him, you know, to write me another song. I you know, <laughs> write me another one. But yeah. uh, no, but I've been lucky over the years though with with um, singles, you know, that have kind of taken off, as as we say ourselves in, in the business. Oh, this song is after taken off, great. Yeah. And and then you record another song and you think, oh, this is it now. They're all going to love this one. And it doesn't happen. And, and it wouldn't click at all with anybody. You know, it's 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 amazing. Yeah. Really, the but way of course, works. if we if we could adjudicate. What the big hit is? Sure, we'd be all multi-millionaires. Oh, sure, and we'd be all we, Will we have a, a, a piece of music? Come down the mountain, Sketchy Dale. Will we have? Why did you choose this uh, song? Yeah, um, I've always loved the song. I think it's a great, fun song. Yeah, and always loved it. It's been recorded by millions of people, really, mm. over the over the years. But I wanted to do something kind of fun. And that would be fun at the concerts to do yeah. as well, or at a dance for that matter. And it has turned out to be one of the most popular songs I've ever recorded. Isn't that yeah. amazing? All right, let's have a listen to it right now. Oh, can't you hear us calling Katie Daly? We want to drink your good old Mountain Dew.
That's Louise. Come down the mountains, uh, Katie Daly. And as you were saying, it's huge live. I mean, it's... uh, Yeah, it's so popular, Fran, you know, and I recorded it with my great friend Peter Maher up in Clock Jordan. And, um, you know, I just love what Peter did with it as well, you know, to give it a That's just brilliant. Brilliant. nice great, and punchy great, and, and great fun. Life to it. Speaking of your friends, of course, on Friday week, November 3rd, um, uh, Philomena Baby, Ray Lynham, Jerry Guthrie, Marty Daniels, Molly O'Connell, and a wonderful band. Matrimony is your, your, yeah. your backing band. Yeah, they're a top-class band. And when people see them, they'll know all the guys because, you know, they're always on um, in session bands on TV. Yeah. They're um, part of the Opry Daniel orchestra, they're, you know, they're on the Late Late Show regularly, yeah. you know, with bands have played with various bands over the country but they formed their own band last year and they're in great demand but they are top class. Yeah, which which is great. You, you, your friends, people like Philomena Begley and Margot and, and the, the, the women of that vintage, if I can say, they were very welcoming to you, weren't they? Because they, they became were. your very good friends. They were, yeah, we're all great friends and, yeah. and we chat regularly on the phone and uh, particularly during the last couple of years, you know, when we were all stuck at home yeah, all the time yeah. and and, you know, we all rang each other all the time and just had chats and, and I love meeting up with them. And, and you know, some of them would, if they're down the country, they'll stay at our house, you know, rather than travel well, back up the north lovely, and all that. It, yeah. yeah, so it is lovely. And, and I'm looking forward to, you know, catching up with Philomena. Philomena is like the mammy to all of us, really. You know, she, she kind of minds us. <laughs> what a all. character, though. Yeah, oh, she, she's super. And, and I see her even with the new young up and coming um, female singers, male singers, she kind of takes them under her wing and she'd be chatting to them and advising yeah. them. And, you know, she's she's just lovely. And what, now. She's 80 now, isn't she? She was 81 there just last week. My she's God, marvelous. She's, she's still doing, doing she fantastic, really you know, and putting on a great show as well. We have a pair of tickets to give away. Yeah, yeah, yeah delighted to. Do you, do you to. have a question for our listeners? I have. We'll make it a nice, easy one yeah. for, for everybody. Um, what village... In County Tipperary, do I come from? That's very difficult. That's yeah, fierce hard difficult one. altogether. <laughs> so 083 311 if you enter, want to enter that. So that's for the lovely Talbot Hotel, November 3rd, with Louise and that fantastic lineup as well. What can people expect on uh, the night? Will you look back at the old catalogue? Will you? What, what, yeah. what will you do? Yeah, well, of course, all the, the, the guests will all come on and do their own spot yeah. and all their own hit songs, uh, of which there are many. And it's it's a super show because, you know, each night I've had different guests. You know, I was up in uh, Nace in County Kildare last night and we had a different lineup again. And, and um, but it's, yeah, they'll all come out, do their, their own thing. I come on at the end and I've put together some medleys of all my best known songs. Oh, very good, yeah. You know, yeah. and you know, because I want to fit in as many of them as I can. And you know, just a f- couple of good fun sing-along songs as well, you know. Mm. And of course, friend, our great friend Tony Brooke is going to be there Which as well. Excellent, yeah, Tony, Lovely choice. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, delighted to have him there as well. And, um, you know, just looking forward to seeing everybody and the tickets are absolutely flying already for the Talbot so I'm delighted so um, So if people want to get tickets what's the best way to do it? Yeah they can go to the hotel reception the Talbot hotel reception they're available there they can go online on willwego.com they're available online there and um, come along on the night as well if Mm -hmm. you know but Yeah, yeah, you'd be better you off, might, to, you buy might be better off to buy your tickets. Yeah, because a, they advance. are selling really fast. Right, because yeah. you don't want to be sending anybody home. No, we don't. We don't. No, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. What, what What was it like revisiting the songs, the older songs that you mightn't have played for some time? Was that Was that fun? Was that... It, it was. It was great. And you know, I spoke to Declan O'Hare, who's the the MD of yeah. of, of the band, and you know, I just said, right, I want to do this, 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 and you know, so 
here are the keys. Can you can put you them put all them, together. yeah put them together for yeah. me? So so they did a great job yeah. in in arranging them. I mean because there was one or two that I hadn't done for ages, and you know when you're on a show. Um, you know, doing guest spot on a show, which I do a lot now around the country, and you're only doing maybe some night, nights you're only doing five songs. Mm, yeah. And it's, you know, obviously you can't fit everything in. So I'm trying to fit in as much as possible on my spot on this. So, yeah, it is. It's lovely to, to you know, my my Tipperary songs that I'm always proud to sing. They're, they're always going to be there anyway. Yes, of course. Yeah. And, you know, and a couple of fun sing-along songs as well with everybody. Uh, I'm just looking at the screen in front of me. We're inundated with people who want to win tickets to, to oh, your that's gig. Good. So, that's so that's, good. that's fantastic. I'm delighted to see as well you're giving uh, the, the younger artists a chance as well. Uh, Molly to get that stage along with such well-known artists. It's fantastic yeah, for her. Yeah, she's as well, beautiful and yeah. she's such a, a beautiful girl. person in yeah. every way. And we became great friends when she was on Glortira with me last yes. year. And we've just become great friends and um, she's she's a lovely person and, and uh, you know, the, the fans love her as well. Yeah. But she's just so nice and pleasant to, to everybody as well, you know, when she meets everybody and very, very down to earth person. So, yeah, it is important to, um, you know, to bring along new people and give them a little platform as well, you know, because we all needed it when well, we started out. That's, that's uh, for sure indeed. Okay. Some people, it, it is very much a concert, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah, 100% well. concert. Yeah. 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 Now, if they want to dance along the back wall, they can. They won't be stopped. <laughs> no, but no, it is yeah. a concert. Yeah. Right. And uh, just important to point that out for, for, for some people. But if you want to dance in the aisles, I, I don't think anybody will be will be stopping you. It's fantastic. I'm delighted you're doing this. And you're doing it all around the country as well. All around the country, yeah. France, since May, last May. We started off in May and all the concerts have been spread out, you know, through throughout the the, the summer. And um, like we've got, yeah, the Talbot Hotel now on Friday week. Mm. Um, I've got Tullamore tomorrow night. Mm. I have Carlo um, in, a, in a week or two as well. And then in December, I've got Kilkenny. And that's that's it then. That's the end of those, of, of the 35-year yeah. concerts. You yeah, know? And very... in the meantime, then I'm just working away, doing my own spots as well on other On shows other people's as well. shows yeah. as well. And is that something you enjoy? You I know? do. I really yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. I do. Yeah. yeah, it's great. It's great fun. Again, you know, to, to meet up with the other artists and, um, you know, you, you, there's no pressure really. Go out yeah. and do your lovely spot and meet people at the break of the show or at the end of the show or whatever. And that's, yeah. I really enjoy that side That's of it. great. And it's so simple as well. You get in your car and you go home, which is, which is kind of nice as well. So November 3rd then, Talbot Hotel in Clonmel. And just to, just to list again, if people want to buy tickets for that, Louise. Yeah, the tickets are available from the hotel reception the Talbot Hotel reception, they can go online to willwego.com and hopefully, uh, it won't happen, but if people come along in the night, hopefully we'll be able to accommodate people. But it is advisable to buy in advance because it is selling very, very well. Oh, right. And thanks to all yourselves here at Tip FM for promoting it so well for me. Thanks well, very sure, much to sure. all of you. We're delighted to do that and delighted that you have Tony Brook there as well because of course in fairness to people like Tony Brook and Carol currently and all of that and uh, Owen on a Sunday. I mean th- that's the lifeblood of the business now isn't it? I mean the fact they're playing the records they're the only people It, it the is records, of course yeah, yeah. you know and, and you know people like like the the country music presenters yeah. and you know yourself you've been very good to me and very good to all of us as well but you know without the radio play we'd be all sitting at home yeah. you know it's important and it's important everybody to give each other a little helping hand along the way well that's for certain anyway lovely to see you Louise and congratulations 35 years I just can't you're making me seem very old now when I think about that uh, thank you and lovely to see you in studio thank you Fran well. thanks for having me on uh, Louise Morrissey November 3rd at the Talbot Hotel in Clanmel Tonnoch to Ogs and Olds 
Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Thanks, Pat. Welcome back to the final hour of uh, Tip Today. Our Louise Morrissey tickets going to Sadie Ryan of Balanura. Uh, Carrick and Shore, well done to you, Sadie, and I hope you enjoy that on the 3rd of November at the Talbot Hotel in uh, Clanmel. Of course, needless to say, Louise is from lovely Bansha. Following my conversation with uh, Dr. Eileen Cullity, uh, being more mindful of where we get our information online, that discussion happened in the, well, the second hour, I think, uh, of the programme this morning. Um, Paul was in touch with us. Here's a little of what he had to say following that chat. If ever anybody was right, that lady is 100% right because she's just discredited her own argument. The very fact that she said that there isn't a consensus amongst uh, media or amongst reporters when there was only one single narrative by every single media outlet, whether it be print media, whether it be radio, television, whether it was internet, no matter what it was, there was one single narrative and anybody that spoke against that was almost cancelled. And for her to suggest there that that wasn't the reality, exactly, that's the headline that you'd want to go past. She's 100% right what she's saying because she's just disproved herself. And that's uh, Paul, who was listening uh, to uh, Dr Eileen Cullity uh, speaking to me about that uh, new campaign that's out there where media is uh, concerned. And uh, the new campaign, you're going to be hearing about it on uh, radio and TV over the next while. It's uh, under the banner of Stop, Think and Check. Now, an event is taking place this weekend to commemorate John Mahoney, who has been dubbed the Forgotten Soldier. Joining me in studio to tell us more is author and historian Tom Hennessy. Good morning, you, Tom. Morning, Frank. And lovely to see you today. I've been reading through, this is a remarkable story. When I said that to you off air, you said it's probably the most remarkable story you've come across, Tom, well, is it? exactly. Like, I suppose we're the last two years, uh, myself and Robert O'Keefe, um, researching the area where I'm living, which is um, Ballyluby, um, Clahean area, and we've been researching, we started off researching the first march of Sean Hogan's Flying Column. And um, we've had some amazing discoveries. We've, we've uh, been brought to um, old dugouts. Um, I was on the Galtees, another recently discovered um, dugout. Uh, Neil Donovan, the historian from Ballyperine, brought me up to that. Um, but safe houses, you were in the Safe, safe houses, houses right? yeah, we've safe houses. Uh, sat, at, sat at the same tables that the IRA flying column sat at, drank tea at. Great interviews from people. Um, I, I've put them up on my TikTok channel there, at Tipperary Fenian. And there's a massive interest in it, like, you know. But the end of August, there, 30th of August, I just got a text message from Robert and um, he said, just went, you forgot about Ballyluby centenary. And so I just replied, what's that about? And he just said, yeah, John Mahoney. So 
went over to my box of files, uh, my box of papers, copies of uh, the Sean Miles collection, which I got thankfully from Frank Miles. They give a great has given a great service to the, to the locality that we've actually got this information. Yeah. And Sean Miles basically was gathering up uh, evidence for pension applications and. Um, so, uh, some of them were successful and some of them weren't, weren't not successful but the big thing was he kind of had the family had kept everything in a big box so a trove of information for the likes of me so anyway I found my paper anyway and yet there was 39 names and yet John Ma- there was a John Mahoney and Justin Brackett's beside him was deceased no more information so text uh, Robert back and yeah I have a John Mahoney and next thing I got this um Amazing message. Uh, it came from the papers of Sean Fitzpatrick, Elaine Fitzpatrick and Tip Town's grandfather. And um, basically it read, um, uh, John Mahoney, volunteer, Grey Company, uh, brutalised and neglected by the Free State in Kilkenny Jail, died in Cashel Poorhouse, 24th of the 6th, 1923. Now, to be honest with you, Fran, to say I was shocked because... Um, usually if there's been a casualty of war, say, in an area, they're a focal point, as in the stories are, are down through the generations. Yes, yeah. uh, more than likely, there'll be a monument where they, got, where they died, or there'll be, you know... So basically, Sean Fitzpatrick had him listed. Um, but to, to say I was shocked, uh, so straight away, anyway, you know, in every area, there's a, there's a local that is basically... The, the the historian of the area mm. and I rang Kathleen Maloney straight away from Duhul because I knew the address was Castle Grace where, where John had, had been reared like. And so, that's near Cloheen isn't mm, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The yeah. famous uh, Tolbert graveyard is literally just five minutes away from where this church is Duhul like, you know, yes. where Geoffrey Keaton is buried. And um, so, yeah, she, basically she came back to me and said, yeah, I've, I've, I know of the family. And she said, I know actually where they lived, she said. And, um, but I said to her, do you know where he's buried? Like, so, um, the next few days went by anyway. And I start, I rang Father John Nally, the priest in Bailuby to know was there any, uh, records kept. So he said, I think, uh, you need to go down to the old graveyard in Castle Grace. There's a chance he could be in there in Tullahartan. So I went down there on a Sunday, spent about three hours walking around and um, no sign of uh, John Mahoney. Uh, Did Tulbred the following evening. uh, I kind of knew most of the graves in Ballyluby and no sign of John Mahoney. Um, Then we... We had a bit of luck then. We, I, I had noticed that there was a man, and Kathleen had told me there was a Mahoney grave in uh, Duhull. So there was two ladies named on that, and the two ladies were actually sisters of John Mahoney's. So we had found a family plot yes. of, of it. So, you know, but no sign of John Mahoney's name anywhere. And um, so we were kind of at a dead end so I went back anyway and I was I said I must go through this and see is there any small snippet of information because usually if, if there's a, a an IRA member dies there's a Republican funeral mm. so uh, I was very lucky and I came across a local man from Castle Grace Dennis Luby's handwritten account and what he said basically was doesn't name John Mahoney but he says one man of the battalion died in prison when his funeral arrived in Duhul, I fired a volley of three shots over his grave, for which I was arrested two days later. So, what did that tell you? So, basically, I knew he was in Duhul, yeah. in the cemetery, 
but I didn't know where. Um, right. Now I said to Kathleen, "Is there, a, you know, what was there a chance he was he was in his where his sisters are buried?" But we weren't. We know we know um, evidence. So the following Wednesday, I, I was to meet Father John Nally because um, I wanted to discuss with him. Uh, putting up a plaque um, or some sort of memorial for um, John. So you talk about coincidence. So the night that I, it was Wednesday night, it was the the usual mass on Wednesday night in Dohal, and um, went met Father Nally and uh, Sacristan Anne. And Father Father John said to me, "Talk to Anne there because she knows a, a good bit of local history." So not only did Anne know where from handed down information where he was buried, uh, her her mother Catherine had told her. Anne is actually living in the house that John was reared in. My God. And it, it gets even stranger, Fran, and I've come across this while researching um, the IRA lads. I won't say I'm being guided from the grave sometimes, but strange things happen. Coincidences. Coincidences yeah. yeah. So the other big strange thing that night was that there was a family with a, a yearly anniversary in the church that night. And that family, they were they were talking outside, they were mingling, talking, and they were, they were gone then. And when they were gone, Kathleen said to me, do you know something? When the Mahonies, um when John Mahoney died, uh, they fell in hard times. He was the sole earner for the family. And he had a brother, David, but David uh, was incapacitated. And um, Alice Mahoney, in the, we had found, in the meantime, we had found a full pension application for which she did not get a penny from the government of the time. Um, but when the family, when John died, they fell on harder times and the actual farm that they moved across the road to, that was the anniversary of one of their members in the church that night. So I kind of just felt like, you know, is it a sign we're right to be doing what we're doing and it's great to be uncovering this. So, uh, yeah, an, an amazing story. Isn't it amazing though? Will you take me way back because John John died very, very young but I'm a little bit confused because some of the documentation spoke about him dying in jail but he didn't. He died in the so-called poorhouse in, yeah. in, in Cashin. Will you explain yeah. that as to why he was transferred there? He must have been in pretty bad shape. Yes, yeah. I'm just going to, I'm going to read out another small piece here and this is his mother Alice in her own words and this is from the pension application form and it's a letter uh, she I think they applied for the pension on two occasions but this is in the 30s and um, mm. David her son was still alive John's father had died in 1918 and there was a pretty large family of them but this is Alice's words um, in the 30s say 10 years after John had died uh, the people responsible for his removal from jail Saved themselves nicely, for if he died in jail, the responsibility would be theirs. But they made sure he would die a pauper, not a hero. My God. So, I suppose, you know, to look at it, uh, the poor house in Cashel, it's, you know, I've, it's listed in the pension file as Cashel Hospital. Uh, you're a Cashel man. Um, yeah, St. Patrick's in Cashel. Yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, hospital would be a glamorous word for, let's say, back in those... At, at that time. At yeah, that time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, when he... He was arrested just to go just to talk about his arrest um, briefly. Um, like most of the great company, he took the anti-treaty side. Um, you know, I suppose the oath of allegiance was too much for a lot of these lads, and he joined uh, Bill Quirk in Clonmel and Dinny Lacey were reorganising. So uh, another IRA volunteer from Mitchellstown called David Moher, and David was tasked with um, fine, uh, starting another flying column. So they found themselves first of all in care with the Republican side. And then when they it kind of got going, 
uh, in the summer of 22, they were fighting in Kilkenny, Ireland. Now, there's another sad story here, but look, thankfully, his family know all about him and he's a lovely headstone. Um, uh, John Patrick English is buried yes. in Whitechurch. And John was actually a comrade in the same company um, as John Mahoney, but he was killed... Uh, died um, while manning a machine gun above near Mary Willie's there in Kilkenny. So uh, he's remembered. And actually, just before I forget it, I have a relative, a direct descendant of John going to lay a wreath on Sunday, on Sunday which, which is going to be very special. Um, so at two, literally a week later, 14 of that column, including David Moher, the leader, were arrested. And 32 years of age, John Mahoney went from, uh, they were brought to Thurles first and then transferred to Kilkenny Jail. And uh, John Mahoney walked into that prison, a healthy 32-year-old man, and was dead the following June. Um, so something happened to him in the Conditions prison. were terrible. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was a prisoner of war, and it was, you know, yes. what Sean Fitzpatrick wrote down, brutal is neglected. So that's the truth of it. And, of course, Kilkenny Jail at the time was notorious, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was just yeah. absolutely... The other, thing, the other yeah. thing you had, I was talking to Sean Nugent... Um, from the Liam Lynch committee there yesterday. Yeah. Um, but we had another lad, McGrath, out uh, just down the road here near Powerstown. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, strange circumstances, killed trying, while trying yeah. to escape. And there was a lot of that one time. There, there was a commemoration for him just a couple of months ago. Uh, that was, no, uh, no, this one hasn't been commemorated. What was it? Yeah, okay. that, you were thinking of the one in Newcastle. Um, he was shot here in the town hall in Clamell. He was, was, a, he, was yeah. a, he was a condon man. But we, so... Basically, for the last two years, I suppose, why we've been doing this, we, we've, um, we've, we've gone to commemorations. It's, there's been great community commemorations. Like, you, killing all, you had Tony Kelly, um, Tom Donovan. Mm. Tony ran that last year. We had Seamus Hayes above in my glass. You had a local man there, Matty Tynan. You had Willie O'Donnell, Pat O'Donnell. Uh, I attended that as well. But, uh, you know, these people are heroes. Yes. Especially Tipperary, where... Um, you know, these are the heroes. So, I suppose the forgotten soldier to me, why was he forgotten? Mm. Um, I would say that the family fell in hard times, uh, mightn't have had the, the... But but did not the powers that be succeed in what they did? Because the fact he died in the so-called poor house meant that he wasn't going to get hit. Yeah, and I've, I've put that in the paper yeah. article. Um, thanks, Jamie O'Flaherty there. You printed the full full article in that the, the Echo, the yes. free newspaper, Thank, thanks to that as well. But I actually state that in that in last week's article that, um, yeah, the, you know, if he had died in, the, in Kilkenny Prison, martyr-like, yes, and the yeah. media would have covered it. Of course, yeah. He only lasted two days when he got to Cashel Hospital and... Um, from there, then. And what were his injuries? Are we aware of what, um, how he died, or what he died of? Yeah. Now there is a doctor cert in that that says uh, TB or some of that description, but mm. Alice's mother completely denies that. You yeah, know, she thinks he was mistreated. Obviously. Oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing there is that you know I said this to Kathleen Maloney. God, like you know, there was still people alive fifty years ago that would have, you know, probably known the story. But maybe if the family were approached, then they were so maybe she was so bitter after everything that had gone on. She was, you know, yes. and then the families move away from an of area. Of course, it was a different time. People didn't want to have those conversations at times either, you know. So for clarity, is he buried with the sisters? Then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. No name on the headstone. No name. Um, now, to be respectful, we, we had trouble tracking down close family relatives. So to be respectful, we, we've got permission from Father John Nally um, to put a plaque, a simple plaque 
uh, in the on the wall of the graveyard near where he's buried, and um, it's it's you know I mean that's that's going to be. Uh, there for future generations, you know. We, yeah. we, but, but John Manny will be remembered. Well, John Manny will be remembered now, yeah. um, you know. And I suppose John Manny, you know, he he went he went out, believed in what he was doing, paid the ultimate price, and the least he should have is his name, you know. And I suppose we have to thank Sean Fitzpatrick. At least he was on a, an old roll of honour. Mm. But um, locally, he deserves. For sure. What age was he when he died? Only thirty three. Thirty three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he he didn't have family himself, did he? Uh, he didn't have family. No. Yeah. And yeah. we 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 we've had trouble um, trying trying to find uh, family. Hmm. But uh, now it's going to be a very special weekend for the parish because Saturday night mass is going to be um, for offered up for John Mahoney's soul and Sunday morning and Father John Nally is going to a wedding. He can't be with us at two o'clock, but. After mass at nine o'clock in Dull, which I'd urge people local, especially to try and attend, he's going to uh, bless the new plaque. Um, so that'll be a nice occasion as well. Won't it just indeed? So two o'clock on Sunday, you're, you're always at odds to say, at pains to say, non-political. Everybody's welcome to this time. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. we can't we can't um, overstate that. Uh, I've given you a present there today, friend of and the thank poster. You. It's gorgeous. Um, yes. We're yeah. not we're funding this ourselves. So we, at the moment, um, hope Ollie Costigan's not listening because we're 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 a bit off the final figure, but yeah. they're selling well. Uh, we're selling them for a fiver and. Um, any donations yes. um, will be will be welcome. I just want to say as well, the Rebel Hearts, Dr. Tim Horgan, um, you know, the great uh, backers. Um, there's also a group that are based in Arlow, Pat Bice, uh, Tipperary Independent Republicans, have all donated already without being even asked. And that's, you know, what makes Tipperary such a, a special county, that people, you know, when they see something like this happening, they really get behind you. Of course, which is great. So it's Duhull Church, it's Sunday, 2 o'clock. Uh, Duhull there, Castle Grace, Sloheen, I suppose, is the, is the, the yeah, easiest and, thing. And uh, just a shout-out as well, of course, uh, Father Nally, uh, thank him so much um, for, for allowing this all to happen. Uh, Cathy Maloney's Declan Slattery there um, you know great locals that are putting their wheel behind it and we've Tommy Leary there uh, Tommy's done, done some great videos with me there lately on, on the TikTok um, and for information then it's uh, at at, at Tipperary Fenian or at Tom Hennessy 20 on Twitter and I'm, I also have Facebook there um, but um, yeah, that's it, Fran. So Very good. So y- your wife won't give out to you too much now about this interview today. You didn't get <laughs> you didn't get political. Uh, <laughs> did she warn you, Tom? You didn't Should get I? me going, Fran. <laughs> Tom, it's always a pleasure to see you and thanks very much indeed and congratulations on all of the detective work as well yeah. around that and have have a special day on Sunday thanks too. Thank much, you man. indeed. We'll take a break back in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Now, Ireland's fittest family is back on our screens this weekend and you will see a very familiar face from Tipperary because Tipperary hurling legend uh, Colin Bonner will be taking part along with his family and he joins me online this morning. Good morning to you, Colin. 
Good morning, Fran. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Lovely to uh, chat to you. What prompted you to get involved with this column? Oh, well, that's, that's a long story. I, I suppose my, my youngest girl, Ashley, 15, she kind of grew up watching the programme and uh, always said she wanted to enter when she got to 14. So, you know, I took no notice because I said I'd be near 60 myself, so I didn't think I'd be partaking. But, yes. yeah, it's strange how it actually came to be. Fantastic. So so who exactly is taking part then, Colm? Yourself and your younger daughter? Well, Ashton, yeah, as I said, is the youngest. And uh, and then we would have Killian. He's 27 and um, he probably thinks alike in terms of um, with Ashton. He was always, you know, encouraging Ashton to say, yeah, look, why not? We can keep it going. And um, But I thought keeping fit for Killian is what he does. He runs his own kind of full rotation fitness business. So, he, you know, he was always in good shape. So you know, he, he would be ready for any type of a call. And I suppose my other daughter, then, Sarah, she's 25, and uh, she was working in Limerick, and she was doing a Masters as well, and she was a bit harder to convince, I suppose. But, um, yeah, in the end, then, when uh, Killian said he had her centred, and uh, we have to go on a team's call first to kind of see, would you know, I suppose, past the first hurdle. And, yeah, we just took it from there. And, yeah, as I said... Uh, I think the next step then was uh, we were invited for a, t- a fitness test in Dublin um, in, in sometime in May or whatever. And uh, yeah, it just took off from there. Like it was totally rigorous. They tested our kind of aerobic capacity, our explosive power, you know, our mobility, agility. Yeah. So wow. yeah, it was interesting in terms of um, and then wait to see them where you're going to be accepted. And yeah, I kind of that gave us the first kind of indication. We saw a family coming up from all over the country, going through the fitness testing, and uh, we're kind of saying, mm, do, we, "Do we want this?" But in the end, uh, we were delighted. Then we got invited to the to the as one of the competing families. I'm sure you were. And did you immediately then have to collectively go into a sort of a fitness regime? How how did you approach it? Is what I'm probably saying, Colin. Yeah, uh, I suppose uh, Killian had moved back home. He had been in Spain for a while. He was back home, and Ashton obviously been at home and myself. So, yeah, it kind of gave us a focus once uh, we said uh, we were given dates when the program was going to start or when the um, you know the, the actual competition was going to start. Mm. So, yeah, it did force to kind of do a small bit, and uh, we did try to get together at weekends. Uh, maybe just to tip up in a bit. But I think as a family, we were always in kind of good shape. And I, I think it says a lot for, you know, GA families that generally, you know, there, there is so many things that throw, throw on you in Irish Citizens family that, yeah, we, we had a good overall level of fitness anyway that we felt initially to compete. So, yeah, it's, um, and yeah, I suppose it's not until you get to the actual, the lake that you find out who you're up against and what type of family, what their strengths are and what they're bringing and, uh yeah, it kind of took a life in its own then and uh, we got into it. I'm sure you did indeed. Now, of course, it's all done and dusted before we see it on our screen. So you, you have all this recorded and done, I guess, at this stage. But I know there's very little you can tell me, Colm. It is, yeah. I know it, it's done and dusted and uh, at, at this stage. And as I said, we can't ruin it on anyone. Of course. Kind of, yes. Yeah, as I said, but it, being involved with such a professional setup, like there must have been 60, 70, 80 people in terms of working on the uh, on the location and, and it was just incredible to see it. You know, Laura Fox, who was an Upa Centre and yes. uh, she brought great life and energy to, she, to the new road for her, but she had to get to know all the family. So we had very good conversations with her and and then when I think of the, the athletes that were involved, like Sonia Sullivan was one of the coaches and we weren't sure who we were going to get and uh, 
you know, she's just an incredible athlete and dominated the world track for years. And, you know, we all know she's a world champion, a European champion, a world cross-country champion. Even her daughter is a world champion. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, and I would have known Nina from being on the program there. And kind of Nina Carberry, kind of saying, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, when she when she won in 2005 in Cheltenham, from what I gathered, it was the first time in 18 years a female won. Like, so... She was she was competing at a huge high level and you know obviously Davy Fitz I was known on Holland no. Field yeah. not only played against him but had many battles in the sideline too with him and you know he, he brings huge passion and and then when we found out Donica was our was our coach we were delighted you know I would have followed Munster for years and he himself played for Munster for seventeen years and you know those initial European Cup uh, campaigns that they had they ended in you know, agony, and then when they finally got over the line, like, we were all part of it, and Munster at that time were driving forward, and, yeah, look, he had a great Irish career as well. I, I, I wasn't sure if you could uh, tell me that, but I'm delighted to say you can. So, Donica was your, your coach, essentially. Donica ended up as our coach, yeah. yeah. So, you, you would see the photographs going around, uh, and Donica is in with us, so, like, we were we were delighted, like, to have someone like Donica. He's he's just fantastic in terms of being the competitor that he was, but yes. when, when, you know, when competition bell rang he was just he was literally he'd come out fighting and he'd get you fired up he'd pull on all the strings you know in terms of the family and and then when it was over yeah you know he, he had a huge positive attitude and the crack that you'd have with him after it and so yeah look it, it was amazing amazing experience to be with with such high profile people as well and yeah, yeah, and, and, and that's really, that's very interesting because, of course, we see edited versions. I presume hours of stuff is recorded, and we see edited versions of it. But I was wondering if they're as hands-on as they appear on the screen in terms of the coaching. But from what you're saying to me, Colin, they're very, very much part of what's going on. Oh, hugely! Yeah, look, the coaches are just hugely competitive, and even though they sit around together and we'd sit with them and we come and we'd be chatting away, just as we're chatting here, and uh, very down to earth, very approachable, and. Yeah, look, it's um, but once once the families get together and uh, once you know you walk the course, you're told what you have to do. Then this is where the strategy comes out, and this is where you know Donnie's experience would kind of count. You know, he he's been the, on the program I think since it started, mm. and you know we we'd walk it and we kind of say what part of the course would best suit your you know your ability or Killian's ability or Ashley or or, or Sarah's ability, and how we kind of cover it, and you try and cover everything, and it's. It's difficult because, um, you know, the challenges that were at the lake, um, you had to, you know, you performed them on your own. You don't really know how how you're doing. You're competing against the clock and you're trying to set the best time possible. And, you know, straight away after that, you're interviewed and you're kind of interviewed in the vacuum because you don't know how the other families, how the other families went. And it's. Yeah, it's 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 very stressful now. I have to say that as well. And you, you, you're a real family man. So, what what does this do for for a family in terms? Of, does it make you closer, even in some sort of a way, Colin? Ah, uh, yeah. Look, look. Um, we all know when when we play sport, uh, one of the biggest reasons we play and play at a high level, even though we do it for ourselves and we play it at a very good level, you know, family, we do it for our family and we take so much pride in terms of, uh, you know, them coming to, they would have watched me in mm. my latter years at Chip and even, you know, for me supporting Ashton and Killeen and, and Serge in their, in their campaigns, you know, yeah. it's, Family is huge, and, and with the Bonners, you know, we have such a huge extended family sure. that uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's powerful in terms of when we do all get together. And yeah, look, it's um, 
does it bring us closer? Yeah, it, it definitely, as a family, in terms of competing together, it, it kind of shows us up for who we are sometimes and uh, who who dominates and who leads. And um, yeah, but at the end of the day, we're in it for each other. And you know, yeah. if I went down and the picture event or whatever, you know, they picked me up or someone would come through for me and, and when you're talking about your family, it's, you know, and when it's your daughters or your or your son doing it for you, you're kind of saying, okay, look, I, I need to get the finger out and do a bit more for them. So, yeah, it was of it course, was powerful. Yeah. And, and did, that, yeah. did anybody emerge, maybe that surprised you, uh, like for with Ashling and Killian and Sergio, did, did, did you see qualities about them that you might have seen in the past, I suppose? <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I suppose we always knew with Killian. He, he's he's um, he's so much into into the, the physical fit yeah, side of it, yeah. and he, we knew his strength and his power. You know, could pull us through maybe in some events or whatever. And uh, Sersha, yeah, look, Sersha would have played at a good level for Waterford. She would have all Ireland under sixteen intermediate medal for Waterford, and you know she's a competitor as well, and she's as tough as nails. And I knew that would come out that mm. she wouldn't get second to anybody, and she would be dependable, and that kind of came true. And then Ashley being fifteen, like she's kind of making a, a small career for herself in Camogie or herself, and she would have played. She and currently playing with the fourteens and sixteens at Waterford, and 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 doing well, like but. Yeah, we weren't sure how how she would mingle in being the youngest and uh, being one of the youngest competitors, uh, you know, on the day. So, yeah, she took it in her stride. And, um, yeah, look, we, we showed a lot of emotion in terms of being up and down and whatever, like, but... Yeah, it's um, it's strange how it worked out, but uh, even travelling up, like you know, for the first fitness test uh, as a family and competing yeah. against other families and just having to be together and having to depend on each other, like well, kind of, I suppose that was different. And obviously, then when you get to the lake, it was one family against the other, so you had to be as tight as possible and work with your coach. So, yeah, um, yeah, That's it was it. interesting. Look, um, even as, as competitive it is. You know, there was a family from Tyrone, there was a family from Kerry and a family from Meath. And, yeah, look, we get to know them and as the day went on and we'd be chanting them. And, yeah, well, look, we'd all, all be nervous and we'd all want to do our best. And I suppose the worst part is when, you know, after your two events and they call all the families together. Oh, yes, it's, you're waiting um, at that point then. Oh, yeah. it's just yeah. you don't really know how, how you're doing. You're lined up and you're standing with yeah. your coach and, uh, and they say what family is first and, you know, obviously... The, the excitement of that, and then they say, "What well, family is out?" And us, and then you know, it, it leaves two families then to fight it out to try and stay in the competition. And yeah, it's it's stressful now. I have to say, I found the days very, you know, stressful in that sense. And yeah, so you yeah. know, and just for the three or four minutes you might be on TV, there was a huge amount of work and a lot of stuff that goes on behind the grounds, and they would have came down to us and visited us in our home, you know, on Boat Strand, and sure. uh, yeah. had different activities, and we would have. You know, been you know that bit of training that we'd have to do, and done it kind of in there, and making sure that we're doing something and, and, and being ready for it, like so. Well, yeah, interesting. But we but can't wait to see it, Colm. It's this uh, coming Sunday, of course, at half past six on RT One. I know you can see it on the RTE player as well. But uh, I know it's all done and dusted. But should we all want to wish you all the very best, anyway, Colm, uh, to yourself and, uh, yeah. and uh, the family. And lovely to talk to you. You're based, of course, as you say, in Waterford now, even though you're a proud casual man. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm based in Morse now for a good number of years, but as I said, you're a proud cashman man, a tip man, so yeah, this, um, I'd, be, I'd be carrying the water flag and the tip flag going into this because my, my three kids obviously are, are Daisha, 
born. So, yeah, they take great pride in that too. Well, Colm, a delight to talk to you and thanks very much and my best to you and your family. Thanks for coming on with us, Colm. Okay, fine. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Bye-bye okay. to you. Now, that's a great Colm Bonner there taking part in uh, the brand new version of Ireland's uh, fittest family. Uh, we had a chat in the office earlier on and Ali came up with the notion that we should have Ireland's most unfit family and there's one I could enter. No problem. In fact, I dare say I could do extremely well in that. All right, uh, let's uh, take a break. We're back with gardening. Keep your gardening queries coming into us, by the way. 83 Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter, or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Tip Today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. It's time for gardening and glad to be joined as usual by our horticulturalist, Alton Nesbitt. Alton, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Uh, Great to talk to you today. You're going to start uh, with uh, chatting about planting spring bulbs. Is it that time already, Alton? Uh, It is, and it's a lovely time of year to plan for the spring, really. Um, And uh, the spring bulbs give such a, a display uh, right through the, uh, let's say, early spring, right, right into, the, into the summer, really. Um, so there's lots of uh, bulbs to be planted at this time of the year. And I, I love them kind of in drift, you know, so they give a good show of colour um, right through the springtime. Now, again, uh, the snowdrops are probably one of the first things that do come, up, come up into flower, and, and they're magnificent looking as well. And they're quite small little flowers. So they're lovely towards the front of a bed or even um, in, in amongst, um, uh, let's say, in the lawn, which is particularly good. But again, plant five bulbs together um, and, and then uh, about, about a couple of feet apart so that you get good lovely clumps uh, uh, display um, through the early spring. Now, with the snowdrops, they're, they're probably plant good to be planted in, in as much of, and most of the spring bulbs as well, is naturalise them as much as possible. So allow the foliage to die back naturally uh, as much as possible. So if you do have snowdrops in your lawn, or even the thing called um, anemone or muscaria uh, in the lawn. It's good. It's a good idea just to leave the the grass a little bit higher than normally, so that you allow the foliage to die back naturally, and um, so that then all that nutrients and energy gets back into the bulb again. So it gives a great display for next year as well. Again, um, now there's such a variety of bulbs um, in stock now, so that we would have. And um, there's the lovely the daffodils, the lovely um, uh, the Dutch master daffodil, which is a really large one uh, with the large trumpet, yellow trumpet out of it, which are particularly good. And they're they're fantastic in in larger areas. You Notice, know, say, if you have um, an avenue going out, going up the drive, uh, it's just to plant them at either side of the driveway that uh, makes a great display. Or even have the little small dwarf tetet daffodils, little little um, uh, dwarf daffodils, the multi-headed daffodil, and they're lovely in the rockery because they're they don't go too tall. Um, they have these lovely multi-stems on them, and they always stand upright. I always find with the um, larger daffodils, especially if you're in a very exposed site, they tend to get blown over in the wind and, and get damaged that way. But if you, if, you ha- if, you ha- if you live in a very exposed area, go for the more dwarfer type of bulbs, things like the tetrasette daffodils, or even the lovely dwarf um, tulips, the red riding hood tulip, which is particularly good. And that's a lovely bright red foliage. But it also has a lovely variegated leaf, on the, the, the leaf of the tulip as well, it was particularly nice. Um, other bulbs then, 
uh, which are quite good then, are the lovely paper whites or even the hyacinths. These are lovely bulbs to have inside the house. And I think always, kind of, you can plant those now and then you'll have a magnificent display or scent um, uh, during Christmas time. Uh, because the paper white, a lovely double creamy white flower that comes out of it, but the scent of it is like the, high, the, the sense of hyacinths. If you had a bowl of those on the whole table, you would just perfume the whole house. It sounds uh, gorgeous, yeah. yeah. It really, really is lovely. And then, of course, everybody knows that the hyacinths, and the hyacinths are particularly good as well, um, and you can get those quite forced, so, so they produce a lovely large flower on them. Now, with any of the bulbs, it's a good idea to keep turning the pot regularly so that it's not growing in one direction uh, towards the light, especially in the house. So it's a good idea just to turn them every so often. There's another thing called amaryllis. And so the big amaryllis, they're almost like speakers, these flowers that come out of it. Um, and that's a quite a large bulb that you get um, at this time of the year as well. And they're very, very showy. I mean, you actually can see them growing every day. They, they have this lo- lovely uh, tall spike of a flower that comes up from it. And then these lovely large tubular type flowers that come out in it. And they come in a variety of colours as well. You can get almost a bi-colour on them, kind of a, 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 a pink and white in, in, the, in the one flower. I almost think it's lovely goes. for kids, Alton, to watch that growth, isn't it? It's it, just it, it is. so well, exciting. Well, it's, yeah. well, it, well it, it's magical, really. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and see, I, I love things like that, that, that they can grow inside, that um, uh, give good colour and scent. And then it's just the, 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 the whole thing of turning the pot regularly mm. so that it's growing straight up. Um, it's, it's great for kids to watch uh, nature um, and how powerful nature is, sure, really, yeah. and, and beautiful it can be. Uh, the bare root hedging? Oh, yeah, this is a great time of year with bare root um, hedging. And to think about it anyway, because it's still, once the um, leaves start falling off, all the um, uh, trees and things like that, once they go into the dorm season, it's a good time to start planting your bare root hedging. Now, things like the, the white thorn um, hedging is particularly good if you live in a country area. Um, and it's very good um, as stock-proof fencing, really. Um, normally, I'd plant about seven per metre, kind of do them in a, in a staggered row, so four and three uh, in a staggered row, and that keeps it completely stock-proof um, as they grow. When you plant them as well, you get them in widths, almost like um, about, about two-foot-high widths, and uh, you, what you do is you cut them back to six inches. This, uh, this um, makes them bush up a lot better from the very base of it, so there's no gap from the ground up. You know, it, it, it's quite full, full hedge. And white horn is particularly nice um, uh, because it has that lovely round top. It makes it a lovely round top hedge. Um, uh, and as well as that, every so often it's nice to plant a, 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 um, a Paul Scarlet, a uh, Crotagus monogyna, Paul Scarlet, which is a lovely uh, red or pink uh, flowering uh, uh, white horn. And that's particularly nice between the white flowers of the ordinary white one you see growing uh, wild in the in the hedgerow. And then you have the lovely pink one as well. It's particularly nice. The two contrast quite well together. And again, they're very, it's a very hardy hedge because um, it can grow in very exposed areas as well. Um, and it's quite a vigorous thing. You, can't, you couldn't really kill it. It's, it's quite a vigorous thing um, and good strong hedge as well. Other things then... That, what, that are nice to, to grow is, are the, the evergreen um, hedges. Mm. Things like um, uh, your laurels, of course, or Portuguese laurels is particularly nice. And I like the laurel because it's quite a hardy one. Um, even if it goes minus uh, 30, it still, still will survive. And as well as about, about the laurels as well, they're quite easy to grow because, I mean, even if you prune them back very hard near the ground level, they'll always re-sprout again. Things like um, we used to grow a lot of the, the Grisselinia or the Escalonia, and they get an awful um, uh, hammering with um, the frost, and they're a little bit more tender. They're better growing just in the coastal areas, or even a thing called Hebe, um, which is quite nice as well. And they're lovely as a hedge um, uh, around the coast where you don't get the severe frost. 
Um, other things that, which are which are particularly good are the holly hedges. I love holly, uh, particularly at this time of the year. You see the massive red berries starting to grow on them, um, uh, and uh, they're, that's very good for the, the wildlife as well, of course. Or even the yew hedge is particularly good. Yew is a lovely dense hedge, very very um, uh, compact in habit and and very full. You wouldn't actually see through it at all. Um, it's quite slow growing, but once once it's uh, established, it's really magnificent looking type of hedge. Now, with you, of course, it is um, poisonous, so it's mm. important to ha- have those in 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 the boundary or whatever, just to, to give good good privacy in that. But um, not where there is stock or anything like that. Um, but again, a fantastic um, evergreen hedge. Um, there's other other um, types of uh, bay root hedging that you can get as well. Is it's thing called Euonymus europaeus, which is um, um, a lovely natural um, type of uh, tree. It's a witch hazel, but has lovely pink berries at this time of the year. Um, very unusual, um, kind of a pink brack on, on, on the, the, the berry, which is particularly good. And lovely autumn colour. And this time of the year, the magnificent autumn colour from the, the Euonymus europaeus is particularly good in a naturalised hedge as well. But again, the fruits, it's like a fruit of a poisonous tree. Um, the, the, the fruits of it are quite poisonous, so, so be, be wary of that, that as well. In mind. I'm glad you're talking about hedging because a number of our questions today, in fact, uh, were about hedging. Um, can you deal with some of the other questions into us, uh, Alton? I've grown two apple trees from seed. They're quite tall. Should I put them into a larger pot? Or when can I sow them into the ground? Yeah, well, really growing um, apples from seed, they don't really come true to type. Um, and what I mean by that, uh, it, generally it will be um, more of a, a crab apple than anything else that, that will form. See, most apple trees are grafted or budded, um, and, and um, they're, 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 they're grafted onto a rootstock that gives it much more vigour um, uh, and uh, so that you'll get the, the, the variety that you want, really, and, and, and the cropping that you want as well. But generally, um, you can... Uh, uh, transplant them at this time of the year um, coming into the autumn time, the ideal time to do it. Um, water well after transplanting and uh, you, what you'll have is, is not a true type of, of the apple that you, you're, you harvest from. It would it be a, a lot weaker um, and uh, it, it won't form uh, as, as much of a crop as, as you want. So really the best uh, apple trees to get are, are the ones that are grafted um, uh, at the base of, on a, onto a rootstock. Um, they're much, much, much better um, uh, cropping. And um, again, with apple trees, it is a good idea is to have um, an ornamental crab apple, something like um, John Downey or Golden Hornet, um, Malices, um, and they're they're quite good to cross pollinate most mm. apple trees as well. Um, but very, it's lovely to to grow, um, uh, I think, fruit in a garden. Um, because it's, 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 we're so bountiful this year. Um, uh, I was collecting apples myself, I got bagged loads of it, um, and there's nothing nicer than going into the orchard and collecting um, loads of apples or fruit or pears as well um, at this time of the year. For sure, and speaking of apple trees, somebody else says, I've inherited two apple trees and I haven't a clue uh, about them, so I'm not sure in what way they've inherited uh, the two apple trees. But I suppose what they're asking is looking after them. I suppose, Alton. Yeah, yeah, really. With um, lot of, now, once you've harvested all the fruit, um, uh, it's it's uh, you get an awful lot long vegetative growth on the top of the tree. So it's very important. We don't really want any vegetative growth. What we want is a lot of fruit spurs. So therefore, it will produce loads of flowers and, and, and therefore lots of fruit. So try and get rid of all that long vegetative growth that's on the top of the tree. So cut them back to about four buds to the main stem. This will force it to produce these lovely fruit spurs uh, on, on the, the stumps of the, of, of the tree. And that will, will um, create a lot more flowers for you. Um, now, rich fruit trees, well, 
went stuck on completely dormant in the next couple of months is to spray them with a thing called winter wash. That will get rid of any um, algae or lichen or moss that's on the tree. Keeps it lovely and clean looking as well. And also feed your, your fruit trees now with a thing called sulfate or potash at the base of the trees. This is, encourages it to produce um, more flowers and, and therefore lots more fruit as well. And that makes it a lot healthier looking as well. Um, now, which, if, if the tree has any canker on it, these kind of like are almost like knots of, of um, it's almost like a cancer that attacks the tree. It's cut out as much of that as possible and use a thing called Arbex heel, heel paint onto the wounds as well so that the, the canker doesn't spread any further into the tree and keeps it lovely and clean. Um, most trees, are, uh, most fruit trees are quite easy to grow really. It's just to, to um, do that type of thing, keep, keep it clean and, and cut off any dead or damaged wood off it um, and uh, give it a good feed of potter just to, to, to force just loads of fruit for you. Yeah, they're, they're quite easy to go generally. Geraldine was on to us and she says, uh, I have uh, white lilies in a container. I want to transfer them into the ground. They are very healthy looking, just leaves now. Is it okay to transfer them from the pot to a place in the garden? And where is the best location for them? You can. And really with the lilies, it's good to put about three bulbs together uh, when you're transplanting them. Now, uh, on her, on the stem of the lily, um, where the foliage is, sometimes you get these things called bulbils. These are little little bulbs that are forming on the axle of the leaves, and so so save all of them as well and transplant them uh, as well. Or even at the, the parent bulb, you'll find these smaller bulbs just around the base of the of the, the, the bulb itself is to is to transplant them as well, so that you get lots more uh, throughout the garden. Um, lilies are quite easy to grow. Again, plant, plant three together. Only plant them uh, twice the depth of the bulb itself. Um, cover over with a nice loamy compost. And make sure that there's um, almost like sand or gravel just at the very base of the bulb where you're planting it. They don't like uh, wet ground um, or even waterlogging. So allow allow good drainage at the base of the lilies. Um, that, that's the main thing with them. And always plant them in full sun. Somewhere where it's nice and bright and sunny because uh, lilies can grow quite tall. Um, and then once the flowers on them are, are quite big as well, uh, and the scent of them is, is, is magnificent. Sometimes I always put a kind of a, a herbaceous perennial uh, stand over them as they're growing up so that they, they give them support. Um, because once the weight of the flowers are on them, it tends to, to topple them over if you get a windy day or something like that. So yeah, give them support um, as, they're, as they're growing. Uh, another listener has a spider plant, but uh, the leaves are going brown. Uh, wondering, can you bring it back to normal? Yeah, the, the chlorophyte and pictins are the lovely spider plants and you often get little little plant plantlets coming out from it. And sometimes if they're in full sun, they'll get scorched at the tips of the foliage. So it's important to have them kind of in an area where they're not in, in direct sunlight. Um, now, feed them with a little, just a little, two drops of the, the baby biofeed into, into the saucer of the spider plant um, and that will, will, will revive it. Remove any uh, damaged foliage really um, off the spider plant because it's quite a vigorous plant. It grows quite quite easily. Um, so again, just pinch off any, any of the dead or damaged foliage. That will just encourage much healthier foliage coming in from the centre of it and then to, to, to almost um, cascade out over the side of the, the, the container. Um, spider plants are probably, probably a, quite a nice plant to have on a, a, a top shelf or something like that because it has those lovely little plantlets that, that hang down from it. Just a final one, if you would. My cheese plant has a black spot on it and I'm wondering what I can do where that is concerned. What, a cheese plant, just, just tell yeah, us about the, that. The, the, yeah, the, the, the chef lirias or, or, or the, the cheese plant, they, they sometimes 
um, we'll get um, a rust on, on onto the foliage of it. Um, a, a good feed to do is this, a liquid seaweed feed for them, um, and that gives it um, um, a much healthier foliage, lovely dark green foliage um, on them. Now they're quite a vigorous thing, really. The, the, the cheese plants, the Swiss cheese plants, they're actually a climber, if anything. So um, really, have almost like a, a pole for them to climb up on. And you train them, train them up along, and they can go up and over the arch of, of the window or, or something like that. They're, they're, they're particularly nice. Um, again, feeding with the liquid seaweed feed is the best thing for the Swiss cheese. All right, Alton, always a pleasure and happy gardening. Thank you very much indeed. That's our horticulturalist, uh, Alton Nesbitt, there with us uh, today. Apologies if we didn't get to your question, but we will stack them up and we'll bring them to Alton next time round. Now, we had the most marvellous evening at the lovely Anna Hotel in Thurles uh, last evening, uh, the Tip FM Best of Tip Awards. It was a fantastic night. It was very exciting and there was mighty crack uh, to be had there as well. And Stephen is on the way with the time tunnel during the time tunnel, during the lunchtime show today. He will bring you some audio from uh, last night where he was chatting with uh, some of uh, the people involved. Well, it was a great night and thanks to everybody who turned out. Uh, we had some mighty crack altogether. Uh, that's it for me. Ali produced and I'll talk to you tomorrow. You look after yourselves now, won't you? Bye-bye. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.